The meeting will come to order. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to start our meeting with a prayer for one of our distinguished members who passed away, Jim Hagedorn. Won't you join me in standing? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace to say thank you. We thank you for sending our friend, Jim Hagedorn of Minnesota our way. And dear Heavenly Father, we respectfully ask and humbly ask that you put your arms in your hands of your loving comfort around his family, his wife, Jennifer, and also, dear God, around wonderful people from Minnesota who sent Jim to Congress. We are so grateful. Jim Hagedon fought a good fight. He finished his course. And dear God, Jim Hagedorn kept the faith. And I know now that you have put that crown of righteousness on his head. Dear Heavenly Father, Jim Hagedorn played a pivotal role and did great work for agriculture, which he loved dearly. And so, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jim Hagedorn our way. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chairman. Yes. <clears throat> Would you push the chair? Thank you. Okay, thank you all. And welcome for joining us today. Today's hearing is entitled A 2022 Review of the Farm Bill, Commodity Group Perspective on Title I. After brief opening remarks, members will receive testimony from our witnesses today, and then the hearing will be open to questions. And I will start with my opening statement. Um, I want to again say good morning to everyone and thank you for joining us. We have some very distinguished panelists uh, who will give us great perspectives on our commodity groups, on the commodity title programs in our 2018 Farm Bill. And I am pleased to have this distinguished panel of nine representatives from a variety of national commodity associations. In particular, I'm also proud to say that we have two farmers from my home state of Georgia testifying this morning who are representing our important cotton and peanut industries. Georgia is number one in the country 
for peanut production, and number two, for cotton production. I know several of the organizations our witnesses represent will be convening at your Commodity Classic next week, which is an important venue for our policy discussions. And I know that you all will be working hard throughout this year, developing recommendations for the next Farm Bill. Today's hearing is an important opportunity for us to, first of all, reflect on our commodity programs in our 2018 Farm Bill and gather input from key stakeholders on what is working and what is not working for our wonderful farmers across our nation. And to all of our witnesses, I appreciate you taking the time to join us today for what I am sure will be a very informative hearing. Thank you all again for coming. And with that, I now would like to welcome our distinguished ranking member, the gentleman from Pennsylvania, Mr. Thompson, for his opening remarks. Well, Chairman, thank you very much. Before we begin, I'd like to make a take a brief moment to echo Chairman Scott and, and to send my thoughts and prayers to the family and staff of our late uh, friend and colleague, Representative Jim Hagedorn. Uh, Jim was a tireless advocate on behalf of our nation's farmers, ranchers, producers, and foresters, and his love for this committee in rural America will not soon be forgotten. I consider myself blessed to call Jim a, a dear friend, and have, I'm honored to have known him and worked alongside him. I, I send my heartfelt condolences and prayers to his f entire family and staff during this time of significant loss. Our hearts are with you. Um, Chairman Scott, thank you for convening this hearing today and giving the members of this committee the opportunity to hear directly from, from these representatives of the commodity organizations regarding Title I of the Farm Bill. We have uh, 19 months before the 2018 Farm Bill expires, but before we can begin thinking about the 2023 reauthorization, um, we must first have a thorough understanding of how current policy is performing, and we kick that audit process off here today. I want to thank the witnesses who agreed to participate in this hearing, as well as the organizations they represent. Unfortunately, in the past, we have seen what can happen to the Farm Bill when there's a there's divisiveness and a lack of consensus among key stakeholders, such as during the, the process leading up to the 2014 Farm Bill, which ultimately took over three years and a lot of ups and downs before it was enacted. Compare that to the 2018 Farm Bill, which may have been uh, tumultuous at times, but it marked the first time in almost 30 years that a farm bill was introduced in both chambers and enacted into law within one calendar year. Plus, the conference report was passed by a record margin of, in both the House and the Senate. Uh, from my perspective, the key difference that led to the success in the 2018 farm bill was that the commodity organizations were all rowing in the same direction. Um, during the development of the 2023 Farm Bill, there may be some differences of opinion along the way, but I'm hopeful and I, and I challenge all of our key stakeholders to make sure that they're unified as we fight back against the critics of farm policy. Our farmers are the lifeblood of the rural economy, and having a reliable domestic source for our food is a matter of national security. 
Yet those who are not involved in agriculture likely don't comprehend the enormous risks that our farmers and ranchers take on uh, year in and year out to ensure that there's food on the shelves. The disruptions from the COVID-19 pandemic opened many Americans' eyes to the importance of reliable food production. And while for the average consumer, things may have somewhat returned to normal, for our farmers, it's anything but. They are facing unprecedented uh, disruptions in the supply chain for critical inputs, skyrocketing energy costs, and difficulty transporting their commodities. Though there is no silver bullet, the safety net is intended to help absorb some of the risk our farmers face. And I look forward to an honest conversation about how Title I is performing in that regard. I hope the members of this committee walk away from this hearing with a thorough understanding of what is working and what needs improving. The path to success in any farm bill reauthorization begins on the front end with hearings like this. The primary responsibility of the organizations represented here is to provide the key input Congress needs to get the policy right. Each farm bill is different and each one comes with its own unique challenges. It is critical at this stage of the game for stakeholders to give us an honest assessment of where we stand and moving forward to focus on developing the safety net our producers need rather than trying to dictate the process. So I'd like again to thank our witnesses here today, and I look forward to working with each of you and the organizations you represent. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I yield back. Thank you, Ranking Member. And now I'm very pleased to recognize the chair of our General Farm Commodities and Risk Management Subcommittee, the gentlewoman from Illinois, Ms. Bustos, for any opening remarks she would like to make. All right, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, and also want to thank the uh, ranking member uh, for allowing me to offer just a, a very short opening remarks about this important hearing. Uh, as the chairwoman of the subcommittee with jurisdiction over Title I programs, I think this hearing is an important component for the work that our full committee is undertaking so that we understand what's working and what's not working with our commodity programs. So Congress is able to make informed decisions as we head into the next farm bill reauthorization process. Uh, last month, our subcommittee had the opportunity to hear from <laughs> and engage with Undersecretary Robert Bonney on the state of farm policy. And we were able to hear his perspectives on USDA's implementation of farm bill programs and on other very important work that the department has done so um, it can continue to support farmers over the past, over the past year and in the future. Uh, the input combined with the testimony that we'll hear this morning from our, our national commodity associations really is key to our oversight work. And I'm looking forward to the input from our witnesses this morning and also uh, having a continued dialogue with, with each of our witnesses as we move forward. Uh, thank you very much to our witnesses for your testimony today, and I look forward to your input about how our existing commodity programs are working. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, I'll yield back. Thank you, Chair Lady uh, Bustos. And now I'm also pleased to recognize the ranking member of our General Farm Commodities and Risk Management Subcommittee, my friend from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott, for any opening remarks he may have. Thank you, Chairman Scott, and thank you to the witnesses that are here before us today. And uh, before I go into my opening statements, I want to point out that I dug deep in my closet to find the closest 
colors I had in support of the Ukraine today. I see Chairwoman Bustos did as well. And uh, certainly our thoughts and prayers go out to President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people who are doing a tremendous job of fighting the Russians and the arcane um, person who's in charge of that country, Vladimir Putin. And I think one of the things that the world is about to realize, unfortunately, is just how important the food supply is around the world. I think that over the next several weeks, we will probably see a tremendous number of human beings that will be uh, starving because of the actions of one sick uh, individual. Um, as a ranking member of the General Farm Commodities and Risk Management Subcommittee, I'm particularly looking forward to taking a deep dive into the policies within Title I of the Farm Bill. I'm looking forward to working with Chairwoman DeBustos and the full committee leadership for the remainder of this Congress. I'm hopeful that the work we do this year will set up for success in delivering an on-time reauthorization in 2023. Many of us are fortunate enough to represent rural districts. We get the opportunity to interact with farmers back home, and yet even still the producers and the risks that they take each year uh, are hard to fathom. It takes a special individual to be willing to borrow more money than the average American will borrow in their lifetime just to plant seed in the ground and hope to make a crop and pay it off. For them, farming isn't just an occupation. It's their heritage, their livelihood, and a way of life. Title I is meant to provide a base level of assistance when times are tough and prices fall so that farmers can survive to the next year. Yet as we look back over the past several years, I'm concerned with how much we've had to rely on assistance outside of the Farm Bill to help our farmers. Natural disasters, retaliatory tariffs, and the coronavirus pandemic are a few of the things that come to mind. These events, we weren't able to see them coming, but I hope we can have a conversation here today and going forward about what improvements we can make to the safety net to provide farmers more certainty in the face of these kinds of events. If you dig into the census of agriculture, there's a statistic that underscores the importance of getting these policies right. There are only 239,000 operations in this country that generate over $250,000 or more in sales. That's sales, Mr. Chairman, not income. In my district, it would probably take about 300 acres of cotton to hit that number. Those 239,000 farm operations, just 12% of those produce about 90% of all of our food supply. I want to say that again, 239,000 operations in this country, 12% of the farms generate 90% of the food supply for our country and what we export. Those are still by and large family farm operations that have had to expand to offset reducing margins. It underscores just how important a working farm safety net is. If things go south and some of those farm operations start to get out of the business of agriculture, we, should see, we could see significant impacts on our food and fiber production. Today's hearing is a vital examination of where we stand today and the start of a conversation about where farm policy needs to be in the future. Mr. Chairman, before I thank you one last time for this hearing, I want to also mention the impact of bad tax policy on our family farms. Eliminating stepped-up basis and increases in the estate tax will be devastating to America's farm families and America's food supply. Mr. Chairman, thank you again. Thank you to the witnesses here today. I look forward to hearing from each of you and working with each of you in the groups, and I hope that you will all pray for President Zelensky, the Ukrainian people, and those who are out there fighting for freedom hour by hour. Thank you, Chairman Scott.
And now the chair would request that other members submit their opening statements for the record. So um, witnesses may begin their testimony and to ensure that we have ample time to make sure we uh, answer all questions. And now it's my deep pleasure to introduce our panelists and witnesses for today. And to introduce our first witness, I'd like to yield to our colleague from Arkansas, Mr. Crawford. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, full disclosure, our next, our first witness is a constituent of mine who I have been friends with for some 20 years. Brad Doyle is a farmer from Points at County, Arkansas, and serves as president of the American Soybean Association. He's been a member of the ACA Board of Directors since 2017. In 2017, Brad received the Arkansas Farm Bureau Stanley E. Reed Leadership Award. The Doyle family has been recognized as ASA conservation champions. They've implemented two tailwater recovery and canal systems on their own farm to conserve rainwater, soil, and nutrients. And I appreciate the great work they're doing, and I'm proud to represent them. Brad, thank you for being here today, and I appreciate you and all that you do. And, and Mr. Chairman, thank you for the opportunity to introduce my constituent. Thank you. And our second witness today is Dr. Robert Johansson, the Director of Economics and Policy Analysis for the American Sugar Alliance. He was previously the Chief Economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Our next witness is Ms. Nicole Berg, a farmer from Patterson, Washington, who is here today testifying on behalf of the National Association of Wheat Growers. Our fourth witness today is Mr. Chris Edendon, a farmer from St. Ansquare, Iowa, who is here today testifying on behalf of our National Corn Growers Association. And to introduce our fifth witness today, I'd like to yield once again to my colleague from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott. Thank you, Chairman Scott. I'd like to welcome our next witness, Ms. Jacqueline Dixon Ford from Alapaha, Georgia. In addition to working her family farm, she manages Dixon Gin Company and is here today testifying on behalf of the National Cotton Council. She is a graduate of the University of Georgia, home of the national champion Georgia Bulldogs, and has been working in the cotton industry for over 25 years. She serves on the ABAC Foundation Board with my wife, Vivian. And Jacqueline, we're glad to have you here. Thank you. Our sixth witness is Ms. Verity Olibari, a farmer from Melrose, New Mexico, who is testifying today on behalf of the National Sorghum Producers. Our seventh witness today is Mr. Clark Coleman, a farmer from Bismarck, North Dakota, who is testifying today on behalf of the National Sunflower Association, the National Barley Growers Association, and the U.S. Canola Association, and the USA Dry Pea and Lindno Council. And to introduce our eighth witness today, I'd like to yield once again to our colleague from Arkansas, sure, Mr. Tom Hallern. I hope you're doing well, and uh, I will uh, talk to you a, bit, a little bit later. Thanks Let me remind all members, please, 
please make sure your microphones are muted when you're not recognized. Thank you, Mr. Scott. I'm sorry, Mr. Crawford. That's, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I am doubly honored today to introduce another constituent, Jennifer James, who is a fourth-generation rice farmer from Newport, Arkansas. She's part of, owner of H&J Land Company, a diversified family farming operation growing rice, corn, and soybeans. Jennifer and her husband, Greg, farm with Jennifer's father, Marvin Hare. The family takes great pride in their operation's commitment to providing overwinter habitat for waterfowl and instituting practices that conserve natural resources. She serves on the USA Rice Federation and U.S. Rice Farmer Boards of Directors. I appreciate the great work Jennifer and her family are doing, and I'm proud to represent them. Jennifer, thank you for being here today. Thank you. And uh, I'd like to introduce now our ninth and final witness today, and I'd like to yield to our colleague from Georgia, Mr. Bishop. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Bishop. Uh, it is really... Can you not hear me? We're having a little bit of difficulty. You may want to get closer to the mic, Mr. Bishop. I apologize. Uh, again, is this better? Yes, it is. You may continue. Okay, thank, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Thompson. Uh, for having this very important hearing today. It's my pleasure and a distinct honor to introduce the witness from Georgia's 2nd Congressional District, Meredith McNair Rogers. Uh, Ms. Rogers hails from Camilla, Georgia, in Mitchell County, which is one of the top two agricultural producing counties in the state of Georgia. Uh, she comes from a long line of row crop and... since she's the third generation and her family has been we're having some technical Meredith was the first woman Mr. Bishop, I hate to uh, cut you there, but you're having a little difficulty. Leadership Academy, which is a program for young leaders involved in the peanut industry, and she has a unique perspective as one of the better now. Thank you, Mr. Bishop. Thank you. I thank uh, Mr. Bishop for his comments and uh, apologize for a little difficulty we had technically on that. I am so pleased to have such a very distinguished panel of witnesses before us today. Your commentary, your insight is very valuable to us to share with us what works, what doesn't work, so we can improve where we need to improve and make sure the American people have a farm bill that we all can be very proud of. And so now, witnesses, you will each have five minutes. The timer will be visible to you and will count down to zero, at which point your time has been expired. So, Mr. Doyle, let us begin with you when you're ready. 
Good morning, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and distinguished members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to provide testimony on Title I of the 2018 Farm Bill. My name is Brad Doyle. I am a soybean farmer from Arkansas, and I serve as the president of the American Soybean Association. Soybean growers need a supportive farm safety net when markets fail or when significant economic disruptions occur. Based on farmer feedback we have received, it is clear that improvements are needed to make the Title I safety net effective for soybean farmers. Since early 2022, ASA has held 12 virtual farm bill listening sessions, both by region and by topic, with interested soybean farmers across soy's 30 primary growing states. An in-depth farm bill survey was also administered, administered to soybean growers in late 2021. Through these listening sessions and the survey, soybean farmers consistently share the soybean reference price is insufficient. If there were ever a time that the farm safety net was designed for, it was during the China trade war in 2018 and 2019. China is a significant importer of soybeans, importing almost one in three rows of soybeans produced in the U.S. During the height of the China trade war in 2018, U.S. soy stopped flowing into the market during the peak export period that fall. Soybean prices fell about 20%, but soybean producers received no PLC payments and little from ARC under the Title I safety net. The reference price for determining Title I benefits was set at such a low level that PLC payments never were triggered. In fact, 2005 is the last time a PLC or CCP payment, the predecessor program, was triggered for soybeans. If soybeans, the second largest crop planted by area in the U.S., did not help get help from Title I during this critical situation, it is hard to imagine a scenario where Title I safety net could provide meaningful help with the current reference price. Through ASA's listening sessions and survey, soybean farmers also consistently share concern that soybean farmers have a low level of base acres compared to planted acres. ARC and PLC payments benefits are provided on base acres, not planted acres. In 2021, soybeans were planted over 87 million acres in the U.S. By comparison, soybean base total acres are 52 and a half million acres. So 34 and a half million acres of soybean acres were not protected by the soybean provisions of ARC and PLC in 2021. Farmers share these scenarios throughout our listening sessions to describe these concerns. One, a young beginning farmer who is only 10% base on his, his or her farm provided little access to the ARC and PLC farm safety net. Two, greater adoption of no-till conservation practices has enabled farmers to cultivate crops in new areas that have no base. Three, small farmers who have transitioned out of tobacco production and have no crop base. Four, farmers have exited the dairy business and have moved into production of other crops with no base acres. And lastly, farmers have lost cropland to residential and industrial development and sought other areas to cultivate. 
when our survey respondents were provided options to improve the Title I farm safety net for soybeans, the leading two selections were to increase the soybean reference price for calculating ARC and PLC and to provide an option to update base acres. Importantly, farmer feedback also suggests that a combination of remedies to address these deficiencies are needed. For example, if an option to update base acres is allowed, it may not be exercised if the reference price of soybean remains where it is currently set. In addition to these two specific areas of concern regarding Title I farm safety net, my written statement provides highlights of a number of other interests. Thank you again for this opportunity to share ASA's perspectives on Title I of the 2018 Farm Bill. Thank you, Mr. Doyle. And now, Dr. Johansson, please begin when you are ready. Good morning, Chairman Scott, morning. Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee. Thank you for this opportunity to testify before you today concerning the commodity title of the 2018 Farm Bill. My name is Robert Johansson. I'm the Director of Economics and Policy Analysis at the American Sugar Alliance, the National Coalition of Sugar Beet and Sugar Cane Growers, Processors, and Refiners. The U.S. sugar industry generates more than 140,000 jobs across 21 states and contributes $20 billion annually to the U.S. economy. American consumers benefit from a safe, high-quality, reliable, sustainably produced, and affordable source of sugar, an essential ingredient in the nation's food supply. Our product is stored and distributed from multiple facilities strategically located throughout the nation, ready for delivery when and where needed according to the specifications required by our customers. Unlike some other food items, there are no bare spots on grocery store shelves throughout the pandemic. That success is attributable to U.S. sugar policy. Um, I will make four main points today. First, efficient U.S. sugar producers are threatened by less efficient foreign subsidized and dumped sugar that usually sells well below the exporter's cost of production. There are no signs of that changing in the foreseeable future. We must not become overly dependent on foreign suppliers for essential goods. That is why an effective sugar policy which maintains a strong domestic industry is essential to the food security of our nation. Second, U.S. sugar policy comes at no cost to the U.S. Treasury. U.S. sugar policy is operated at zero cost to taxpayers 17 of the past 18 years and is expected to do so again this year. The USDA projects zero cost over the next 10 years as well. The one time it did not operate at zero cost was due to Mexico's dumping of sugar onto the U.S. market at below Mexico's production costs, which the International Trade Commission unanimously held violated U.S. trade law. However, the loan rate for raw sugar cane and refined beet sugar has not kept up with inflation nor the rising cost of production. It, is no long, it no longer provides a realistic safety net for our producers. Since the early 1980s, we have closed 68 processing facilities and most outside investors have exited the remainder of the industry due to the high risk and low returns. It was our family farmers who stepped up to rescue the industry from further closures of their factories, mills, and refineries. Now many of those are struggling. Operating margins are being squeezed each year due to rising labor, fuel, seed, fertilizer, equipment, and interest rate costs that hit our producers in the field as well as in the factories they own. We would support examining how the Farm Bill Safety Net could be updated in the next Farm Bill for all Title I commodities to better match actual operating costs for producers. Third, sugarcane and sugar beets, like most crops, are grown in areas that experience weather disruptions. Crops are resilient, yet risk protection is needed. 
Sugarcane and sugar beet farmers do have some insurance products available to them, but those crop insurance tools are not as well developed nor affordable as for some other commodities. Sugar beet farmers have participated in WIP Plus previously and cane farmers are considering how their losses in 2021 might be eligible for the most recent WIP Plus program. Note that WIP Plus is not currently authorized for recent 2022 disasters, such as the January freeze in Florida. For those reasons, and because this committee has signaled an interest in developing additional risk management programs in Title I to complement crop insurance, we are certainly receptive to new efforts to provide standing disaster coverage in ways that do not undermine crop insurance and possibly even encourage greater participation in coverage levels. And lastly, the current Title I sugar policy can provide an adequate economic safety net for American sugarcane and sugar beet farmers so long as there remains in place effective responses to foreign sugar producing countries subsidizing and dumping. Without those responses, we would effectively outsource our sugar supply to heavily subsidized and unreliable foreign sugar suppliers whose environmental and labor standards simply do not measure up to our own. That would be the opposite of strengthening supply chains and contrary to providing a safety net to American producers. We encourage and welcome the members and staff of the committee to visit our farms and factories. We look forward to working with you as this committee continues to hear from producers as you weigh options for improving the farm bill. Thank you for your consideration and for your support to the American sugarcane and sugar beet family farmers. I look forward to any questions you might have. Thank you. Ms. Berg, please begin when you're ready. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and member of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify before the House Agricultural Committee. My name is Nicole Berg, a fourth-generation farmer, where I work alongside my dad, two brothers, on our family farm in Patterson, Washington. We grow dry land and irrigated wheat on a diversified farm. Currently, I serve as vice president of the National Association of Wheat Growers. NOG is a federation of 20 state associations and other industry partners. Our members feel it's important to provide testimony before the committee today as we reflect on the programs authorized under Title I of the Farm Bill. Today's hearing is a timely as NOG is also evaluating the effectiveness of the farm safety net. These programs and how, how the U.S. Department of Agri Agriculture administers them can be improved going into the next Farm Bill. NOG intends to outline our Farm Bill priorities in the coming months as Congress begins debating Farm Bill reauthorization. Wheat is one of the principal food grain produced in the United States and consumed around the world. Nationwide, there are six different classes of wheat grown in different climates and for different uses. In my state of Washington, there are roughly 2,500 wheat growers. The eastern part of the state is known for the home of soft white wheat. Wheat farmers across the country have experienced multiple challenges over the past couple years from trade disputes, impacts from COVID-19, current supply chain issues, difficulty in procuring inputs, and extreme drought and several other weather events. Supply chain issues and availability of inputs continue to pr be present challenges for us farmers. These challenges include rising prices and availability of fuel, parts, vital equipment and other crop protection tools that allow farmers to continue using climate smart ag practices like no-till. The current agricultural commodity is strong with near record high prices, improving working capital, farmland value, farm income, and revenue. However, this is not without concern. The USDA projects net farm income to decrease by 7.9% when adjusted for inflation in 2022, thanks to rising input costs, supply chain crunches, and significant droughts 
through wheat country that negate the high wheat prices. The high prices of these last two years will not last forever. It's important that Congress maintains a strong safety net for the farm economy given its cyclical nature. As part of the 2018 Farm Bill, wheat growers um, supported improvements in crop insurance title, marketing assistant, assistant loans, and the ARC and PLC. And all of these programs are necessary to maintain an effective safety net. One such improvement for ARC and PLC was the ability for farmers to make annual elections between the two programs. This was provided a valuable option for farmers to better manage their risk. According to data from the USDA, since the 2018 Farm Bill, we have seen a major shift in wheat farmers' choices from ARC to PLC. Regarding service, the ability to re-elect and the application process is straightforward and has been easy to use. On farmer education, the USDA and university extension agencies have done a good job providing tools to help farmers make an educated choice on the program election. Investment in these models is essential. One common complaint among farmers is the difficulty of using and interpreting models and the lack of awareness of their existence. In my situation, we find it challenging to interpret the models, what it's telling us to do, so we have accountants that run models for us. While we farmers almost universally enroll in PLC, there are still issues that persist with the program that the committee should con consider in the next Farm Bill. Wheat, grow, wheat farmers cons, uh, consistently lose money producing wheat according to USDA cost of production data when factoring in total cost. Keeping this in mind, the committee should consider how to make ARC more effective for the wheat, wheat farmers and how to improve PLC to be more reflective of current cost of production. As the committee continues to have these, these hearings and reflect on programs authorized under the 2018 Farm Bill, I look forward to working with the members of the committee, their staff, and other witnesses here today to help craft the next Farm Bill that works for wheat farmers and all of agriculture. Thank you again for the opportunity to testify before the committee today. Mr. Byrne. Mr. Eddington, please begin when you're ready. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the House Agriculture Committee, thank you for the invitation and opportunity to testify today. My name is Chris Edgington. I live and farm in St. Ansgar, Iowa, where multiple generations of my family raise primarily corn and soybeans. I currently serve as president of the National Corn Growers Association, and we are a farmer-led trade association that works with our affiliated state associations to help protect and advance corn grower interests. On behalf of my fellow corn growers, thank you for you and your public service, dedication to agriculture, rural America, and the farm economy. Since the passage of the 2018 Farm Bill, corn growers have faced volatility in the marketplace with periods of low prices and higher prices. Today's futures and cash prices appear strong. However, there are no assurances that commodity prices will continue to trend upwards or if they'll even stay where they're at. Rising input costs are a major concern, specifically fertilizer. Prices have soared to record levels and several companies have unfortunately made a bad situation worse for growers by applying for tariffs to be applied to imports of phosphate and nitrogen fertilizers respectfully. NCGA and our state affiliates continue to focus on addressing high input costs, including direct requests of those companies to voluntarily withdraw their tariff petitions. Widespread drought and intense heat impacted much of the Corn Belt last year. And unfortunately, 
drought conditions have continued into 2022. In 2020, corn growers suffered major losses due to the devastating derecho that hit millions of the highly productive crop ground. In 2019, crop production was heavily impacted with flooding and excess moisture throughout the Missouri River Basin. Federal crop insurance plays a significant role in the wake of natural disasters. Producers also appreciate your efforts to extend and improve disaster programs for 2020 and 2021 for uncovered risk and losses. NCGA has long advocated for market-oriented farm policies. Our focus continues on tools geared toward revenue, which factors in both yield and price risk that growers face. We support the continued ability for producers to choose between agricultural risk county, ARC county, ARC individual, and price loss coverage or PLC programs. We appreciate the commodity program signup periods are now similarly tied to crop insurance decisions. NCGA supported the development of the ARC county and ARC individual programs. In the 2018 Farm Bill, we supported shifting the primary focus away from using NAS yield data to RMA to help minimize county-by-county county payment differences. We also supported additional improvements to yield calculations and transparency to payment components. The PLC program has historically provided limited support for corn growers. Given the trend of increased corn yields year after year, though, the growers appreciated the opportunity to increase their yield, PLC yield, in 2020. And while use of the marketing assistant loans is small among our members, the program remains an accessible tool for corn growers without base acres. Implementation of the current Farm Bill has been fairly smooth, helped by the familiarity of the program, lengthy sign-up periods, and increased transparency of the program components. We commend the committee for the continued support of web-based decision tools that help facilitate grower education and evaluation of the commodity programs and options. While the COVID-19 has been difficult for face-to-face -face interaction with growers, we appreciate efforts at FSA to provide flexibility with producer sign-up. Opportunities exist to build upon those lessons and to further reduce the reporting burden on producers. NCGA and our state affiliates are gearing up to provide additional input and farm bill recommendations. NCJ has already commissioned and conducted a nationwide survey of growers on the usage and views of risk management tools and conservation programs. Next week, we will gather in New Orleans at the annual Commodity Classic, where growers will propose, debate, and vote on updates to our policies. We look forward to working with the committee as NCGA develops a more formal policy priority. Thank you to Representative Sherry Bustos and Austin Scott for including corn growers in the previous subcommittee roundtable discussion on farm safety net programs. As the committee continues oversight of USDA and evaluates the structure of safety net programs, please do not hesitate to reach out to growers for perspectives at future hearings, listening sessions, roundtables, or farm tours. In closing, NCGA recognizes the difficult task ahead to develop the next farm bill. We appreciate your consideration of our views regarding commodity programs and the need for producers to have access to re effective risk management tools. Thank you. Ms. Ford, you may begin when you're ready. Good morning. 
I'm Jacqueline Dixon Ford, a cotton producer and Jenner from Alapaha, Georgia. My family and I grow cotton, peanuts, corn, pecans, and raise cattle. I'm also vice president and manager of my family's ginning operation. I'm testifying today on behalf of the National Cotton Council, the central organization of the United States cotton industry representing all seven segments. U.S. cotton acres is expected to increase this year due to higher prices. Although cotton prices are stronger than in recent years, higher input prices and supply chain disruptions have resulted in significant increases in production costs. Most producers are expecting a 25 to 40 percent increase in costs, largely due to higher fertilizer and pesticide prices. While demand for U.S. exports has been very strong in the 2021 marketing year, transportation and logistics issues continue to impact U.S. cotton shipments. An effective safety net for producers must consist of two key components. First, an effective commodity policy that provides either price or revenue protection for prolonged periods of low prices in depressed market conditions. Secondly, a strong and fully accessible suite of crop insurance products that producers can purchase and tailor to their risk management needs. The yearly election of either ARC or PLC in the 2018 Farm Bill has worked well for growers and should continue in future Farm Bills. In this Farm Bill, producers have overwhelmingly enrolled seed cotton base acres in the PLC program at over 90% annually. We know that ag markets are cyclical and an effective safety net is imperative for the inevitable times of low prices. The non-recourse marketing loan program for upland cotton remains our cornerstone of farm policy for our industry during times of both low and high prices. It is necessary for multiple industry segments to effectively market cotton and provide cash flow for producers. In periods of low prices, if growers choose to forego the marketing loan, they may receive a loan deficiency payment, representing the difference in the market price and the loan rate. This important component of the program should be retained. Our industry is opposed to any further tightening of payment limits and program eligibility requirements. We believe these policies are already too restrictive given the size and scale of production agriculture necessary to be, in, be competitive in today's global market. Artificially limiting benefits is a disincentive to economic efficiency and undermines the ability to compete with heavily subsidized foreign ag products. The 2018 Farm Bill continued the ELS program, cotton loan program, as well as a provision to ensure U.S. Pima cotton remains competitive in international markets. The balance between the Upland and Pima programs is important to ensure that acreage is planted in response to market signals. The stability of the U.S. textile industry in recent years and their expected future growth can be attributed to the continued benefits of the economic adjustment assistance for textile mills. Considering the need to reshore or nearshore manufacturing of critical goods and materials, a strong and robust U.S. textile industry is key. This industry is vital to produce many products for our defense industry and personal protection equipment as highlighted during the COVID pandemic. In recent years, Congress authorized several rounds of ad hoc disaster assistance. While we recognize the budgetary constraints, we believe the committee should review options to include either a permanent disaster program in the upcoming Farm Bill or seek policy options to increase insurance coverage levels that are cost effective for producers. Since the passage of the 2018 Farm Bill, there have been several forms of ad hoc assistance provided outside of the Farm Bill. As Congress begins to plan the path forward for the next Farm Bill, 
I urge the committee to seek additional funding for this important legislation. In closing, I encourage the committee to write a farm bill that provides long-term stability for the future. There will be price declines from where we are today. There will be disasters that are larger than the essential assistance commodity programs and crop insurance provide. There will be trade disputes that wreak havoc on our export markets. The NCC looks forward to working with the committee, ag organizations, and other stakeholders to develop and pass a new farm bill that will effectively address the needs of all commodities and all producers in all regions of the country. Thank you for this opportunity, and I would be pleased to respond to any questions. Thank you, Ms. Ford. And now, Ms. Olibari, please begin when you're ready. Good morning. Thank you, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee for the opportunity to speak to the committee today. My name is Verdi Olibari. I am a fifth generation diversified farmer from Melrose, New Mexico, on the east central side of the state. I've been a member of the National Sorghum Producers for more than 10 years. The climate in my region necessitates being very conscientious about the crops we grow, as we are very limited in the amount of rainfall we receive each year. The 20-year average for rainfall in my county is just under 16 inches, and in 2020, we saw a record low of only 6.7 inches of rain in an entire year. The innate drought tolerance of sorghum as a resource-conserving crop make it an excellent fit for my operation. Just as the harsh climate in eastern New Mexico requires me to carefully consider the optimal crops to plant each year, it also requires me to take steps to mitigate my risk. This is where Title I becomes incredibly important, not just to me, but all farmers and ranchers across the country, as we are seeing increasingly erratic weather patterns longer and more extreme droughts in some regions, and more frequent flooding in other areas. The farm safety net and robust crop insurance that helps farmers adequately mitigate risk and volatility becomes vital to the sustainability and continuation of family farms. We are thankful for the support by, provided by crop insurance. <clears throat> it continues to be the cornerstone of the modern safety net and we appreciate all the work that has been done to defend and strengthen it. From a sorghum standpoint, there's still much work to be done in this area. Due to the nature of the program, drought-tolerant, resource-conserving crops like sorghum are not rewarded, but instead penalized, rated such that insurance for competing crops is more affordable. We work closely with the committee in the last farm bill to address this issue and continue to work closely with RMA. Due to the leadership of this committee during the 2018 Farm Bill, we have had the opportunity to collaborate with RMA on a study paving the way for an irrigated insurance product that enables sorghum farmers to insure sorghum at higher yield levels and for less premium. Many irrigated farmers on the Western Plains are facing significant declines in groundwater availability. And transitioning some or all of their irrigated acres to sorghum enables them to use water much more efficiently. However, under current yield and rating structures, most existing and prospective sorghum farmers actually face a penalty. Given the collaboration with RMA, we are optimistic that new options will be available for the 2023 crop year. On Title I specifically, the changes to the ARC and PLC programs have been positive overall. Farmers in the sorghum belt use PLC more, expensive, more extensively than ARC, 
but for those that do use ARC, the new formula has been helpful. The change to the way in which the reference price is calculated was also a very positive development as it makes reference prices more reflective of price and cost realities. However, given the level to which prices and costs have increased and the speed with which this has occurred, PLC reference prices are now too low. The same situation is true of marketing loans, which remain an important cash flow tool for our farmers, but are now much too low relative to current risk. We believe reference prices and marketing loan rates must be adjusted upward to remain relevant and would urge the committee to consider an index or inflator tied to fuel and fertilizer prices as U.S. farmers need to maintain their productivity through such turbulent times. Allowing an annual choice between ARC and PLC has also been a welcome change, and our farmers greatly appreciated the opportunity to update base acres. However, these now routine activities combined with existing programs and the growing complexity of these programs sheds new light on the importance of staffing at FSA. Delivering these programs well requires resources, staff members that can actually go into the office and work with farmers. FSA programs will continue to be a key component of the farm safety net. So we encourage additional resources for FSA to deliver these programs. Thank you for the opportunity to offer a firsthand account of how the existing Farm Bill Title I programs are functioning in the sorghum industry. I look forward to answering any questions you may have for me today. Thank you very much. And now, Mr. Coleman, please begin when you're ready. Good morning, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee. My name is Clark Coleman. I am a fourth generation farmer from Bismarck, North Dakota. This year I will plant 10 different crops, including confection, oil sunflowers, malting barley, canola, yellow peas, soybeans, grain and silage, corn, spring wheat, durum, and we have out 600 head of cows. This crop diversity is not uncommon in the northern tier, where many farmers typically grow at least four different, four or five different crops every year. I am past president and chairman of the National Sunflower Association and still serve on the National Sunflower Board. I will also speak today on behalf of the National Barley Growers Association, the U.S. Canola Association, the U.S. Dry Pea and Lentil Council. I will serve, share perspectives on Title I pro program elections and dynamics for crops and the relationship of the references prices to their market prices. Overall, the Title I programs allow the crop insurance program are the backbone of most important factors in the stability of our operation. With, without them, it would be difficult or impossible to get financing from a credible lender for my seed, fertilizer, and other production input costs, which is, are experiencing significant increases this year. The Title I programs are largely working as they work in, were intended for my farm and for my crops that I produce. The options and flexibility provided under the 2018 Farm Bill allows producers to choose between ARC and PLC program options on a farm-by-farm farm and crop-by-crop crop basis. This has given the farmers the latitude to develop protection plans that best fit their operations. The policy decoupling farm program payments from planting continues to work well, providing planting flexibility by tying income or revenue protection to recent historical base acres rather than current year crop plantings has allowed farmers to respond to market signals rather than prospect of receiving government payments. As a producer of multiple crops, it is fundamentally important that my decision are based on market signals. The Title I programs are serving as a safety net, not a market driver. The references prices established in 2018 Farm Bill for crops that I grow were reflective of the market for the first few years. However, the dynamic may be changing as we are experiencing a surge in prices of fertilizers and other inputs that significantly increase the production costs and risks. 
I would like to take this opportunity to note that the current issues with input supplies and prices highlights the need to promote domestic fertilizer and chemical manufacturing. This should be considered a food security and national security issue and should be a focus of any efforts to make our supply chains more resilient. For sunflowers, PLC program has been primarily used by producers, but ARC also has been used. Oil type sunflowers are currently at $33 and confections over $40 per hundred weight. Last year at this time, oil sunflower or oil type sunflowers were $21.60 and convections were $26.80 per hundredweight. The reference prices for the other seed, oil seed categories under the current farm bill is $20.15 per hundredweight. This reference price level, like others, has been unchanged since 2014. At this price, the, the other oil seed marketing loan rate at $10.19 per hundredweight is not used very often unless it is a cash is for cash flow. The same is true for loan rates for all the crops that I grow. If market prices move to the loan rates for these crops, it would be difficult to recover costs. For barley, PLC has been the primary program election with small amount of ARC payments. The barley reference price is $4.95 per bushel and production contracts for malting barley were in the $6 range in 2020 and 2021. And barley prices are currently at seven to $8 range. For canola, PLC has been the choice with very little under ARC. Canola prices this year have been in the range from 30 to 38 cents per hundredweight, while the re reference price for the canola other oil seeds is $20.15 per hundredweight. The pulse crops, dry peas, lentils, and chickpeas have been primarily covered by PLC. Over the past several years, prices of pulses have experienced significant swings from low level dues to tariffs and disruptions in key markets to upward, upward spikes in 2020. Unfortunately, the supply chain disruptions have prevented the pulse products producers from capitalizing on current high prices. The reference prices for dry peas is 11 cents per pound, lentils and small chickpeas is 19 cents per pound, and large chickpeas is 20 cents, 21 cents per pound. The reference price for large chickpeas established in 2018 Farm Bill did not reflect the average market price for Olympic and average market prices at the time, and it does not reflect the current average price. The inadequate reference prices combined with the current historic highs for input expenses is a primary Farm Bill concern for us pulse producers. I want to take this opportunity to offer my perspective on the FSA offices and staff that administer and implement the farm programs. Staff vacancies and shortages in FSA offices are a significant and growing concern for producers. Retirements, workloads have resulted in lots of experience leaving the organization. The larger counties of Western states require separate county offices for ease of access, personal service, and best execution of programs. We need more FSA resources, not consolidated offices. In closing, I would reiterate the existing farm program structure that provides growers with the farm-by-farm, crop-by-crop options and planting flexibility through decoupling are working well. The ARC and PLCO programs and reference prices have been working as intended, but adjustments may be needed to adjust emerging, emerging dynamics. I hope the stability and certainty of the farm safety net that the Title I and crop insurance programs represent remain the top priority and driving force in the timely reauthorization of the bipartisan Farm Bill of 2023. Farmers as well as consumers that rare, rely on food and we produce are facing lots of challenges and uncertainty. Additional instability and uncertainty in the farm safety net and our food production system is the last thing we need. Thank you again Thank for you. the opportunity to participate. Thank you. Ms. James, you are now recognized for five minutes. Good morning and thank you. As a fourth generation rice farmer from Newport, Arkansas, I'm honored to provide my testimony on behalf of the USA Rice Federation, the only farmer-led rice organization that advocates in the best interest of every farmer in the country, along with our mill, merchant, and allied members. While I'm a rice farmer first, my family farm is diversified, growing rice as well as corn and soybeans while providing many acres of overwinter habitat for migrating waterfowl every year. 
U.S. rice farmers harvest 20 billion pounds of rice grown on 3 million acres of sustainably managed farmland, creating tens of thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in economic activity. Half of our production is consumed domestically, while the other half is exported to more than 120 countries around the globe. U.S. rice farmers have long been committed to environmental stewardship, reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 41 percent, cutting our water usage in half, and decreasing energy usage by 34 percent, all while increasing yields dramatically over the last few decades. We will always strive to be more efficient and explore new ways to reduce emissions. But here's the key point for today's farm hearing. Farm families must be profitable to have the wherewithal to pursue these important environmental dividends. This committee, on a bipartisan basis, has a long history of recording, recognizing this and working with farm families like mine to ensure our profitability and capacity conserve our natural resources. This hearing is timely and important because Title I of the Farm Bill, the Commodity Title, is the cornerstone of the safety net for rice farm families. Other commodities might regard crop insurance as their primary safety net. We have worked hard to make crop insurance a more effective tool, but have historically lagged behind other crops in terms of participation and coverage levels. Title I is our true safety net. It helps us compete in a global marketplace that is highly distorted with high and rising foreign subsidies, tariffs, and non-tariff barriers. As you know, China was found to illegally have over-subsidized three crops, including rice, by $100 billion in a year. It would take 10 years for farm bill spending on all U.S. commodities to reach that level. U.S. rice farmers simply can't compete without U.S. farm policy to help level the playing field. The fact is Title I rice policy helps to ensure that more of the world's rice is produced sustainably in the U.S. following the highest environmental safety and labor standards in the world. Price loss coverage has been the most effective option for rice with 99% of long and medium grain rice producers electing it over ARC. Despite the success of PLC since 2014, it does not look sufficient given current economic conditions. Rice simply has not enjoyed the rally in prices that other crops are experiencing. According to USDA, the current market prices for corn, cotton, soybeans, and wheat are 50%, 84%, 77%, and 73% higher than in 2020, but rice prices are only up 8%. Unfortunately, our prices have risen only to reduce the modest benefits provided by PLC. To illustrate, the PLC benefit to rice is down 75% from where it stood in 2019. The payment rate per pound for 2021 is projected to be about one-third the rate it was last year. Current PLC reference prices were established based on 2012 cost of production. They were still relevant when the 2014 Farm Bill was enacted. The market assistant... Sloan rate for rice has not been relevant for many years now. While production costs have risen since 2012, notwithstanding low prices, the price, the increases pale in comparison to what we are seeing this year. The Ag and Food Policy Center at Texas A&M found that fertilizer prices on average are higher per acre for rice than feed grains, cotton, and wheat. Everyone testifying here today and all the farmers we represent are paying too much for inputs, but rice is taking a disproportionate hit on this front while, while our crop prices continue to lag. A recent rice-specific AFPC study of all variable cost inputs, input cost estimates rice farmers will lose over $500 million this year due to these increases. Because of the combined conditions of low rice prices and accelerating input costs, rice farmers are in trouble.
Important steps can and should be taken to shore up the nation's rice farm families in the near term, even before the next farm bill. That is why we sent a letter to Secretary Vilsack last week seeking relief, and I would ask for your support of this request. We remain committed to working with you to strengthen the safety net in the next farm bill. Establishing and maintaining the safety net at levels relevant to the economic times ought to be our primary consideration. This includes payment limitations and actively engaged rules that simply have not kept pace with the fast-changing times in ag. They are outdated, as evidenced by the hundreds of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle who wrote USDA expressing concerns that the limitations for CFAP didn't cover the enormous losses suffered. This committee took steps, important steps in the right direction in the 2018 Farm Bill. We look forward to working with you to build on those achievements. Thank you. Thank you. And now, Ms. Rogers, please begin when you're ready. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as you review Title I of the 2018 Farm Bill. Today, I am representing the United States Peanut Federation, USPF. USPF is comprised of the Southern Peanut Farmers Federation, the American Peanut Shellers Association, and the National Peanut Buying Point Association. I have been farming with my family in Southwest Georgia for over 25 years. I currently farm in a family partnership with my husband, my parents, and my siblings. We primarily farm row crops, cotton, corn, peanuts, and some fresh sweet corn. When I met with the General Farm Commodities and Risk Management Subcommittee early last fall, I spoke of increased input costs such as fertilizer and equipment. Since the subcommittee's roundtable last year, the Center for Rural Prosperity and Innovation at Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College in Tifton, Georgia, has completed its review of U.S. representative peanut farm data covering all the peanut production regions. What we have learned from this most recent comprehensive data is that peanut growers are struggling to cover their cost of production. The representative farms demonstrate that a significant number of farmers are using the equity in their land and their 401k. The 2021 representative farm update revealed the average expected peanut yield to be 4,760 pounds per acre. In a cash flow analysis, the 2021 cash flow was $545.97 per ton. The projected 2022 peanut total cash flow cost to produce a ton of peanuts is estimated to be $666.94. That's a 22% increase over the 2021 cost of production. We're in the process of working on our farm budget for our farm this year, and we have found that our expected increase to be very high. The fertilizer costs alone are over double what they were a year ago, and so availability is becoming a problem. In the 2002 Farm Bill, this committee eliminated the peanut supply management program and established a new marketing loan program. Since the 2002 Farm Bill, peanut planted acres have increased by less than 2% when compared to recent plantings. Yet in a review of this same time period, production has increased approximately 59%. Our industry's increase in production is due to an increase in peanut yields, which was approximately 52% when compared with the same time period. Peanut butter drives demand for peanuts due to its inexpensive source of plant-based protein. 
Domestically, according to the National Peanut Board, demand reached 7.9 pounds per capita in 2021. This is a 37.6% increase when compared to demand in 2002, according to the Center for Rural Prosperity and Innovation. Peanut growers, shellers, buying points support the price loss coverage program, the PLC, in the 2018 Farm Bill. Clearly, peanut growers are facing economic challenges as discussed previously. These challenges are not a result of the PLC structure, but it is important that the committee periodically evaluate, as you are today, the cost of production that growers are facing and determine if the specifics of these programs are keeping pace with the changing economics growers are experiencing. We do have a number of growers in specific regions that have produced peanuts for years but do not have access to the PLC program because they lack base acres. We know that the issue is not specific to peanuts, but we hope the committee will work with commodity organizations to assist these producers. In conclusion, the Federation believes the 2018 Farm Bill PLC program for peanuts has been effective for farm families and the peanut industry. We do believe that the committee should review the specifics of the 2018 Farm Bill in light of the unprecedented cost that the production farmers are facing in the future. While some may argue that the cost will recede to their previous levels once these recent events have subsided, it is my experience that these increased costs do not return to original level. Thank you so much for allowing me to participate today. Thank you, and thank all of you for your very outstanding testimonies. And at this time, members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority members, you will be recognized for five minutes each in order to allow us to get as many questions in as possible. Again, please keep your microphones muted until you are recognized in order to minimize background noise. And now I recognize myself for five minutes uh, ladies and gentlemen, my first question is asked because of this very disturbing and terrible and quite honestly evil activity that Russia is conducting in Ukraine. And, um, and the impact that it's having or could have on our uh, agricultural industry, our nation, has the leading agriculture industry in the world, often referred to as the breadbasket of the world. The good Lord has blessed us in this country to be that leader. But my concern is this. Rising inflation has had a substantial impact on both the prices of our commodities as well as the input costs farmers are facing Things like fertilizer, several of you have mentioned that. And I believe that the Russia-Ukraine conflict will definitely exacerbate these conditions because Ukraine is a major exporter of raw materials and a disruption in these exports will surely raise prices globally. And when input prices rise, 
but support program prices remain the same, it is our farmers who will have to carry that cost. And so uh, with that said, let me ask you and start with you, Ms. James, and there may be uh, others of you who may want to jump in here. Uh, do you think that our commodity support programs like the price loss coverage program, which sets reference prices for commodities, should be more responsive to economic conditions? Well, yes, sir, I do. I believe that your statement about the inflation is a very important one, especially at this time. Um, I believe that, it, you know, inflation rate has grown about 2% a year for the past 10 years, but then we are at 7% in this one last year. So um, that's a considerable increase, although our reference prices have remained the same, same as you have stated. And uh, we will come back to that, but I also want to call on Ms. Jacqueline Ford um, with the National Cotton Council. Ms. Ford, thank you for your enlightening testimony. Can you talk about decisions that you expect cotton producers to make this year in terms of participation in ARC and PLC, as well as stacks and supplemental crop insurance products that are available for producers. There are some crop insurance products that are available only if they do not participate in ARC. And so I realize that dynamic effects that producers' decision, it, it has a dynamic effect on their decisions. Can you shed some light on how these decisions are made? Yes, sir. Um, our family this year will be participating in stacks um, other, rather than P PLC. Um, and we will be doing it at a lower level. It'll be a cost of about $10 per acre. Um, we just got signups done this week. Um, but cost is, an, cost is a determinant. You know, our input costs are so much more. So your cost per acre for participating in the crop insurance programs, I mean, I think will determine participation um, cost, you know. So, so if, if we can make that more affordable for the producers um, as far as participating, I think that would be a good thing. But um, our cost per acre this year has gone up for cotton probably around 30 to 40 percent. So we're looking at an input cost of somewhere between probably nine to nine hundred to eleven hundred dollars per acre right now since the Ukraine war. Um, and right now cotton's trading at a um, dollar one, a dollar two. I haven't looked at it this morning. It was up a little bit. Um, so right now we're at about a break even point at a two bell average. Um, so, yeah, we certainly need some more support. Well, thank you for that. And committee members, we can all do without a lot of things, but we definitely cannot do without food. And it is our nation that provides that supply. With that ranking member, I'll turn to you. Chairman, thank you very much. And thanks to each and every one of, uh, of our witnesses today and your organizations that you're affiliated with uh, for what you do for agriculture. And, and Chairman, I appreciate your, your line of questioning and, and the responses. It's, it's not so much uh, at this point what um, we can have record high commodity prices we're getting, but with inflation, 
you know, it's the margin that matters and uh, and something we need to take into consideration. Now, lately, there's been a lot of conversations surrounding agriculture and climate change. And these are conversations that I welcome as American agriculture has a great story to tell. And we got to get better at telling our story. Um, but often I hear questions about climate framed in a manner that asks, how can we change the safety net or crop insurance to be more climate friendly? And I, I think that's looking at the problem completely the wrong way. Uh, rather, we should be asking ourselves, what can we do to make climate policy farmer friendly? Uh, American producers are some of the most efficient, well, they are the most efficient in the world. Uh, and if the goal is to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions, then the smartest thing we can do from a climate standpoint is, quite frankly, to have American farmers, ranchers, and foresters produce more and export it overseas. Um, and the farm safety net is critical to helping our farmers manage risk year after year. Now, for anyone who wants to jump in, can you talk about the importance of the safety net in maintaining domestic food production? And, and for your commodity, what, what other countries are major producers and how do they stack up from a con conservation and a climate standpoint? And I welcome anyone who wants to jump on that. Well, uh, thank you for that question, Ranking Member Thompson. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, chairing the Federal Crop Insurance Corporation Board of Directors previously when I was at USDA. And I do think that crop insurance needs to focus on providing risk management to farmers. Uh, the program obviously needs to be actuarially sound based on principles of insurance. Uh, USDA can certainly work to incentivize producers to reduce or sequester greenhouse gases, but that is best addressed through conservation programs. And at least that is by and large how USDA has proceeded thus far, um, with one exception, maybe the crop insurance discounts for planting cover crops. But generally, when it comes to the commodity title or crop insurance programs, USDA is properly stuck to the mission of those programs. Um, and we certainly know that the increase in productivity in U.S. agriculture across all of our crops and the levels of efficiency seen in our farms have significantly reduced emissions per unit of output over time. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, obviously, the sugar program is critical to keeping U.S. sugar production viable for our growers. We've seen excessive subsidies provided by other countries to their sugar sector, which effectively guarantees surpluses are dumped on the global market. Uh, moreover, the production in most of those countries does not meet the labor and environmental standards we have in the U.S. So weakening uh, sugar policy and outsourcing more of our sugar production to heavily, heavily subsidized global sugar markets would undercut our supply chains, weaken national security, hurt the environment, and cost us family farms here in the U.S. Thanks. Thank you. Mr. Addington, I saw you were going for your microphone. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, from the National Corn Growers perspective, I, I listened to your question and I think about it a couple different ways. Um, we've been this way for quite a while that the that crop insurance is number one. It, it is our number one best risk management tool. And we need to continue with that. It, and it's it's a vital piece We're we are rolling out another or, you know, we've worked with RMA to do another one coming this year called PACE, which looks at split nitrogen application. And if you can't get it on, um, is there a crop insurance piece to that? And there will be. But we've also got, and we rolled it out last summer, our corn sustainability um, policies where we know over the, by 2030 that we can improve things, you know, on land use efficiency, water quality, you know, all of these over, there's four or five products up to 10, 15%, and maybe some of them beyond that. But that's that's a piece about conservation that we're working on, and it's about efficiencies and quality and, and all of the dynamics that we on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, we age, we have corn, you know, all over the United States. 
and to talk about climate and risk management tools in the same package and they have to be done this way does not fit well with corn. Um, it, it's tough to do the same thing in southern Texas as it is in northern Minnesota or in the state of Washington versus Maine, let alone central Iowa. And, and so it's, it's an area that we want to keep separate from the fact that risk management is risk management, conservation is conservation, and we are working very hard in both areas to improve and become more efficient as crop producers. Very good. Well, I don't have much time left. Uh, just an invitation. I'd love to, uh, you know, have future communications. Uh, if you've got thoughts that you could respond and provide those on that particular question, um, I think that would be very, very helpful as we work towards this next farm bill. Also, we so uh, together we can tell the great story of American agriculture. So thank you so much, Chairman. Thank you. The gentleman from California, Mr. DaCosta, who is also the chair of the Subcommittee on Livestock and Foreign Agriculture, is recognized now for five minutes. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for uh, holding this important hearing as we begin to set this table for the reauthorization of next year's Farm Bill. I think it will be the fourth Farm Bill reauthorization that I've had the privilege to work on. And let me also commend you for your opening comments, uh, remembering and reflecting upon uh, a life well lived uh, in his service to our country, our colleague Jim Hegeldorn, uh, a member of my subcommittee and that we work on together and our thoughts and prayers are certainly with his family. Um, I say this time and time again as a farmer, a third generation, uh, food is a national security issue. And I think everyone on this committee agrees that um, our responsibility to ensure that American agriculture remains strong and, and vibrant, uh, that um, Americans uh, realize that uh, that incredible productive, nutritious food that they consume every night at their dinner table is a result of hard work by farmers, ranchers, dairymen and women and farm workers. Uh, it's a partnership. And um, so we're very interested in your comments today about how we reset the, the stage. Uh, obviously, the focus is Title I today. Uh, obviously, there are other uh, titles in the reauthorization of the Farm Bill that we're going to be cl clearly listening carefully to your recommendations in terms of modifications and changes. Let me um, ask a uh, specific question with our witness, uh, Ms. Ford, on the National Cotton Council, and then I want to have a general question that you folks might want to think about with relationship to the lessons that we've learned in the last two years as a result of this pandemic, horrific pandemic, in which over 900,000 Americans have lost their lives in terms of the supply chain and, and how we've turned our very delicate and complicated food supply chain with 4% of the nation upside down and, and how we address that as we move forward. Uh, Ms. Ford, uh, when we talk about cotton was added on Title I farm programs, um, you uh, talked about the ARC, the uh, risk coverage and the price loss uh, programs that have worked for producers of seed cotton as compared to how Upland uh, was previously treated in Title I programs. Do you care to elaborate any further? For how, the, how it's worked. Well, this year with the, with the prices being higher, I don't think a payment would not kick in, but it has worked in the past and it's, it's more... Um, dependent on price than yield and we usually use we use crop insurance for yield protection but the PLCs work very 
will in the past for price protection. Well, and that's a good segue. I mean, I have crop insurance and, and, and farming, as we all know, is risky enough, uh, given uh, the challenges we face. And uh, as I told uh, a previous president one time, I said, you know, farmers are, uh, are uh, risk takers. And, uh, and uh, so... Um, what lessons do you think we should be focused on? Uh, crop insurance obviously is a, a, is a vital part of our safety net, but uh, on what we ought to be thinking about in reauthorization next year's farm bill? I think we need to be thinking about margins um, as well with the, with the input costs. I think we've got to look at margins and, and what the crops are costing us to produce. And well, the comment that I made with the previous, I said farmers are price takers, not price makers. Now, I've been involved in California for years, uh, leading the agricultural state in the nation. You all nod your heads when I say farmers are price takers, not price makers, because you know what that means. Uh, but how do we uh, look forward in terms of not just the safety net of the insurance program and how we might improve it, but, but what other, uh, uh, I mean, we have the, the inflationary impacts that we're all dealing with, of course, but um, uh, and I'm working very heavily on a bipartisan basis on this supply chain issue that we help will relieve some of those inflationary pressures. But the fact is, is uh, American agriculture is challenged. Yeah. Any one care to opine? I think it's important for uh, for us as farmers. We we invest um, in creating demand for our, our crop, whether whatever it is. Farmer investment. We have checkoffs that help do that. But you, as a, uh, a governing body, you know, you give us the tools that we need to make, to make us less risky. Our, our lenders, that a lot of times young, new farmers don't have opportunities, don't have backing or assets. PLC, ARC, those give those lenders some, some type of assurance that, hey, we can, we can uh, finance this, this young grower and, and uh, he my, could be My time's less expired, risky. but thank you, Mr. Chairman, and we'll continue this conversation. Thank you. The gentleman, the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Agnuston, I'm going to come to you in just a second, but I want to go to what uh, Ms. Ford and Ms. Rogers put in their testimony because I want to talk to you about the letter that the corn growers wrote to a company called Mosaic. Uh, Ms. Ford and Ms. Rogers, in your testimonies, and as we've heard today here, you both mentioned increases in the cost of production. Ms. Ford, you referenced that most producers are expecting 25 to 40 percent increases in inputs due to higher fertilizer uh, and other costs. Fertilizer is the number one issue I hear back home. Um, Ms. Rogers, you note in your annual study on the peanut cost of production from the Center for Rural Prosperity and Innovation at Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College, a significant spike in the cost of production for peanuts, a 22 percent increase in the cost to produce a ton of peanuts. Now, uh, Mr. Edgington, when we want to get down to the heart of things back home, sometimes we say it's time to shuck the corn. And uh, you wrote a letter to Mosaic, your, your association wrote a letter to Mosaic because Mosaic had requested additional tariffs be placed on products that would compete with them. Is that correct? That's correct. We've been in correspondence with Mosaic about their um, uh, tariff application with the International Trade Commission. That's correct. I, I want to read you something. This is from 
this company's annual report to shareholders. And I, if, if I'm not mistaken, they control about 80% of some of the markets. Is that correct inside the United States? They are currently at about that level on the finished product, yes. A monopoly. Full year revenues up 42%. Stronger pricing, more than offset volumes. Gross margin up 200%. Adjusted earnings before income tax, a fiscal year record up 129%. And I think that what Americans need to realize is the monopolization of the inputs in our food supply to our farmers is what's leading to the majority of the discussion right here, is that the input costs are going up faster than the markets can absorb them. And it's leading to a tremendous amount of food price increases. Now, the department, they requested the, the tariffs be put in place in February of 2021. Do those record profits sound to you like they would be coming from a company that actually needed protections from competition? Uh, do you mind if I don't answer that part of your question, but I would like to address part of the whole issue? Yes, sir. Um, because we've been, I've been more involved in fertilizer than I thought it would maybe have to be other than on my farm uh, in, this, in this process. And one of the things we've learned in the process is they do not look at this table as their customer. Uh, they are selling to the CHSs and Growmarks of the world. That's their distributing network. And so our pushback on Mosaic or CF Industries on nitrogen fertilizer has been a, sh a surprise to them. Uh, because we've never pushed back before because of the process and, and the engagements we've had. Um, Mosaic has had tremendous profits. Now, they have reasons that they tell us as to why they were competing against foreign countries subsidizing their fertilizer, and that's what they did. They represent about 55% of the phosphate rock inside of the United States, but they represent 80% of the DAP that we are applying to our fields. And so when you have that type of control over the majority of the market, there's, there becomes lots of discussion around um, the profits that they're making. If, if I may, this control is not limited to fertilizer, though. We're seeing increased monopolization, whether it be seed or, or any other type of input cost. And then what you see in some cases is like communist China, where they stepped in and they bought Syngenta. And so I think, Mr. Chairman, we've got a lot of work to do in making sure not only that foreign countries don't own our ag input supply, but that not any individual company inside America controls too much of our ag inputs. And if we could get that right, we'd have significant competition in the input market and we'd have more fair pricing to our farmers. Um, I'm down to eight seconds. With that, Mr. Chairman, I'll yield. Thank you. <clears throat> and now the gentlewoman from Ohio, Ms. Brown, is recognized for five minutes. <clears throat> Ms. Brown, you may be muted. Unmute yourself. Thank you for that. I apologize. Thank you, Chairman Scott. Can you hear me now? Yes, so I can. Go okay, right good. ahead. 
All right, and Ranking Member Thompson for holding this hearing today. And thank you all to the panelists for um, being here and offering your feedback on these important Farm Bill programs. The business of family farming, uh, of farming is risky, and it is important to have smart safety net programs in place for when the unthinkable happens. It is also important for us to ensure that these programs are accessible to all farmers. So my question um, is the USDA has made several modernization efforts to make information and applying for these Title I programs more efficient. Mr. Coleman, can you talk about your producer's experience with using USDA's online tools and program um, application systems? Sure, happy to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the, the FSA uh, um, offices have uh, implemented programs where we can get a lot of that information and do it online, but it does get real complicated. These programs kind of overlap. Um, I'm very uh, involved with EQIP and NAP and, or, uh, and uh, a lot of the programs there. And so sometimes it gets kind of confusing. Um, that's probably the reason why I made the uh, statement about being able to go into the office and talk to these people in person and the staffing, having the staffing and the ability for them to work personally with with uh, with the person, especially with me doing as many different crops as I do. It gets very complicated, but the tools are there. The tools are there and they are working. It, it, it just, it's pretty complicated. Thank you for that. USDA data has shown time and time again that black farmers, black farmers receive only a fraction of the farm subsidies that white farmers do. So my question is, um, mostly, most recently, they released data showing that nearly all the funds provided to the farmers to offset impacts of COVID-19 went to white farmers. Mr. Doyle and Ms. Berg, what are your organizations doing to support black farmers and producers when it comes to Title I programs? And what could Congress do to address these disparities? Thank you for the question. From, from our organization standpoint, we have a new strategic plan in place. We reevaluated our policy and we have included uh, diversity uh, within our, our membership, um, encouraging membership as we are a, a membership election type of board. Uh, we have brought in uh, speakers on diversity, um, educating our, our membership just to let them know um, to be aware of that. We encourage youth. Uh, that is one way. Um, minority colleges uh, with the Manners program. We've recently uh, had them come in and speak to our board and that's uh, opportunity exists there. I am in the in the uh, the Delta, Mississippi River Delta and um, it's um, you know farmers we are uh, there's there's few of us. Uh, it's it's challenging sometimes just to get volunteers on our own board regardless of their ethnicity. So just continue education including diversity um, in uh, Mr. Bridgeforth here is in the room and I've actually been in a uh, educational communication team with his brother, a uh, farmer from Northern Alabama and Kyle has, um, and his family have done great things and we continue to reach out to families like his and others in Arkansas to uh, make us aware of what we need to be doing and improving our association representing all farmers within the United States. Um, at the National Association of Wheat Growers, um, I will be the second woman president ever in the association's um, history. So we have definitely been moving forward trying to get more minorities or anybody, we embrace them in our industry and for our association. 
So we do look forward to working with anybody who would like to walk through the door um, with regard to minorities or anybody at all. Um, we embrace it. Okay, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Thank you. <clears throat> the gentleman from Arkansas, Mr. Crawford, thank you, is Mr. recognized Chairman. for five minutes. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, Ms. James, I want to ask you a quick question first. In your testimony, you noted that Rice's current $14 per hundredweight reference price was built off costs of production, but that was back in 2012. So that's uh, 10 years ago. I don't want to try and lock you in on what you think an appropriate number is, uh, today, given the fact that things are changing so fast in the ag economy, but I do want to ask you just, you know, quite straightforwardly, does $14 per hundred weight reference price represent an adequate safety net for rice producers today based on a recent cost of production that uh, you're seeing? Well, the easy answer is no. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, our market prices are, are just above there. So we're, we're kind of in a, a really tenuous situation right now in rice. And as you know, there's only about 3 million acres of rice in our country. Um, so if rice farmers are not planting rice and producing rice, we stand to start seeing our infrastructure uh, begin to erode in our mills and uh, dryers not be profitable. Uh, our American end users who are buyers of domestic rice will then have to turn elsewhere. Um, food security is definitely an issue. So keeping our rice farmers in business is very important, uh, not only to the rice industry, but to American consumers. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the perspective of all of our uh, producer representatives here today, because I think from the outside looking in, I've had this conversation with many of your colleagues and many farmers, um, you know, historic prices, prices and margin, two different things. So for people who don't play a role in ag policy, but ultimately um, benefit from it. I think we need to get a little bit of perspective here because inflation hits everybody, certainly hitting uh, production costs on the farm and that's hitting you and, and your bottom line. So I think it's important that the American people recognize that if you're just looking at prices, you're not getting the full picture of what it takes to put food on the shelves. And that's exacerbated by supply chain issues that we're seeing. And, and then of course, as has been mentioned numerous times throughout this hearing thus far, um, what's taking place in Ukraine right in front of our eyes in real time and how that's impacting, particularly I would think wheat uh, is, is maybe the most volatile and vulnerable in this scenario. But I think all of you um, and, and your producers that you represent um, are vulnerable to what's taking place around the world. And I think one of the things that we can do to be more proactive in this equation is to turn back on our domestic energy production and make us energy independent. Not only can we address our own needs, this addresses potentially the, the fertilizer issue that's come up. And I'd like to associate myself with the com comments of Mr. Austin Scott. But this also addresses um, our ability to be a net exporter and, and, and actually help um, Europe in a more material way uh, and Ukraine in a more material way. So um, I, I hope that your producer groups are conveying that message as well. Uh, we certainly are here. Um, let me shift gears and, and direct a question to Mr. Doyle. And, um, you know, the soy belt, if you will, I guess, is largely associated with states like Iowa and Illinois and Missouri, Nebraska and others. But Arkansas is actually home to considerable soy, soybean production. And, and, of course, that's where you, uh, where you live and where I live. And I just kind of wanted to get you to provide a little bit of um, perspective on 
um, the soy the soy growing region throughout the United States and kind of where some of the most active areas are. So yes, we are. Uh, if you could picture North Dakota down to Texas, over to Florida, and up to New York and back again. Uh, with the exception of West Virginia, that's where the 30 primary soybean growing areas are. Um, you have within that, you have uh, about 65% that is shipped through the Gulf of Mexico down the Mississippi River. You have about 20, 25% that travels by rail from the northern states to the Pacific Northwest and uh, are offloaded on the West Coast. And then you have some in Virginia uh, nearby. And uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway is now being looked at as an alternative route uh, for, for shipping due to the container shortage. So it's, it's um, three, about 3.1 million acres in Arkansas. I believe we are number nine. And uh, it's, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, on the FFA seal, corn is represented there as a universal. And that may be true. And it's to all, all respect to our corn growers, but I would think soybeans <laughs> probably are, are almost universal as well, wouldn't you? So, so yes, uh, we are. Uh, you know, we ship ship soybeans all over the world. Uh, it is it's, it was primarily a feedstock. Now the oil market is driving the price, and it's a great thing. Excellent. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Yield back. The gentlewoman <clears throat> from New Hampshire, Miss Custer, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you so much to our panel. I'm excited to continue these discussions, tracking the implementation of significant bipartisan wins in the 2018 Farm Bill, and also looking for ways to continue to sustain our farmers and foresters as we look ahead to the Farm Bill of 2023. As we look at the commodity title, I did want to note how important dairy production programs are to my district. In 2018, I was proud to work with colleagues on both sides of the aisle to retool what is now the Dairy Margin Coverage Program. Dairy farmers had long been struggling with high feed costs and low milk prices that threaten the profit margins and survival of the many small, family-run dairy farms in my district and across New England. That's especially true in our region where uniquely high transport costs for feeds were not factored into the margin coverage program at that time. The DMC program has made a tremendous difference in assuring farmers they can access reliable margin coverage and choose between options to ensure that they are securing the best coverage to fit their needs. Despite this win, New England dairies continue to face significant challenges to their long-term viability. Producers are still struggling, struggling with the dramatic shift in the cheese market that have thrown off the federal milk marketing orders and undermined the price of other dairy products. Once again, the New England region is uniquely strained by this situation. And as the USDA continues to work on administrative upgrades to the DMC program, small New England dairies remain under pressure to compete against large scale dairy operations in other parts of the country. I believe there's much more we can do in the next farm bill to shore up our family dairy operations. And I hope future hearings in the commodity space will cover this topic. 
But to shift gears, I'm also interested in ensuring that all our producers, particularly small operations and limited time and resources can easily access USDA online tools and program applications. USDA grant and loan programs and insurance and price support programs are absolutely critical. But we in Congress need to enact policy that ensured that all producers have a realistically fair chance to participate. Mr. Doyle, you briefly touched upon this point in your testimony. Could you talk about your producer's experience using USDA online tools and application systems and what other steps would you urge Congress to take in the Farm Bill to ensure that small producers have as much easy access as possible? So thank you. Uh, any I guess COVID really put a lot of us uh, back in our homes, in our computers. You know, that's where, where we work uh, best from. Anything that we can do over the internet, through the website, on a calculator, or uh, sign up for a program without having to go to town, to an office uh, with the restrictions in place, I think that's gonna make us more efficient. Um, with the, we also are concerned about cybersecurity. We know anytime we put our information over the web that it is susceptible. So we want to make sure that, that all of the information is, is protected. But uh, streamlining uh, applications uh, or you know, data insertion, I think that is a great thing. Uh, modernization of the system. FSA offices have often complained that uh, they don't communicate well between you know, state at the state level, county level, at the federal level. So just making them um, all uh, on the same uh, system uh, would make it easier, make it more efficient uh, with less redundancy. Great. Thank you. Um, I have a little bit of time left. If any of the other witnesses uh, have any comment on the online applications and tools? I might just add that training and education back down to the county offices that can be administered with these farmers would be something good that we need to be sure and, and uh, contribute. Um, and rural, rural internet is obviously an issue um, in most of our areas. Uh, so access is um, very important and having all of that in place, it, it takes time and training also. So that'd just be what I might add to the conversation. Great, thank you so much. And we do um, understand the challenges of rural internet. That's a big issue in my district and we're working on that. We have significant funding in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's already gone through and signed into law and uh, more to come. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I yield back. Thank you. The general lady from Minnesota, Ms. Fischerbach, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Uh, you know, uh, usually uh, I don't get to go this quickly, so I'm very happy today. But, um, you know, I just wanted to um, ask Mr. Johansson, you mentioned in your testimony the foreign market distort, uh, the foreign market distortions as they relate to sugar production around the world. And as you know, there I have large sugar production in my district. And um, when I talk to critics of the sugar program, they seem to fail to realize that weakening the program will put producers in my district and, and across the country um, at, um, at a 
competitive disadvantage around the world uh, simply because of the uh, government distortions. And um, would would the sugar program be needed if it weren't for these government distortions around the world? Congressman Fishbaugh, that's a great question. Thanks so much for asking it. And yes, I had a opportunity just to get up to your district um, and see some sugar beet farms uh, this past summer. Of course, they were, uh, you know, under a lot of duress from the drought that was happening up there. Um, I think it underscores the importance of the sugar program. As you mentioned, uh, there is a great deal of uh, uh, foreign market subsidization of their sugar sectors. Um, unfortunately, that often re results in overproduction in those countries. Um, and that surplus sugar is then just dumped on the world market, um, driving down those prices. So, you know, our producers um, are extremely efficient here in the United States. Uh, we produce, um, you know, nearly 70% of the sugar domestically that we consume here. Uh, and we do that while meeting uh, very high labor and environmental standards. It's just not the case that um, other foreign countries are doing the same in all cases. Uh, and certainly um, on a level playing field, and I know some, some of your colleagues have, and you have uh, supported um, legislation that effectively says um, uh, if other countries are willing to discontinue their oversubsidization of their sugar sectors, um, that we would also take a look at our programs. Um, so with that, I would just say, yeah, our producers, both from the cane side and the beet side are extremely efficient. Um, uh, but as, as I pointed out in my testimony, our, our program effectively is, is administered at zero cost, um, uh, but we just can't compete uh, with foreign governments um, subsidizing their producers to such a degree that's going on. We just saw a recent case um, be uh, come out of the WTO, noting the uh, extreme support that that India is providing its sugar sector, and we've seen um, the results of that uh, with all that sugar effectively dumped on the world market. Thanks a lot. Well, and thank you. And, and just building on that, you, you you mentioned to you know you were able to uh, come to my district and see some of the uh, the uh, uh, disasters that they were facing. You know that the beef farmers were facing last year. And you know you were you were the chief economist at the USDA when the WIP Plus program was put together. Um, that rescued uh, growers in my state as well as other states when natural disasters threatened to drive many out of business. Um, can you explain, maybe just expand a little bit and talk a little bit about the WIP Plus, why it is so essential for our growers and how the producers uh, took care of the consumers then? Yeah, of course, you know, we would say um, producers would, would prefer to have a you know, good harvest um, and market their product as opposed to relying on government programs. But in cases such as we saw um, with, the, you know, with the WIP Plus program back in 2018 and 2019, we had just such a severe hit to the, uh, the sugar beet industry with the freeze that went on up there, that untimely freeze that, that froze a lot of those beets in the ground. And we saw recently, um, just uh, this year, Hurricane Ida slamming into Louisiana um, so uh, I would just say that the WIP Plus program has been effective. Um, our producers have, have utilized uh, that program when it's been um, when it's been there, and and they've been eligible for those losses. Of course, I, as I noted, uh, the 2022 freeze down in Florida is not authorized for WIP Plus at this time. Um, but ultimately, uh, that program, or um, if, if the uh, the committee looks towards um, 
web, uh, working on the web program to make it um, maybe a standing disaster program or something like it in the next farm bill in a way that doesn't um, interfere with crop insurance. Of course, that, as everybody here on the panel has noted, is uh, really underlying the safety net for a lot of their operations. So we would certainly be receptive to, uh, to working with the committee on that. And again, I uh, thank you for all your support, um, certainly in, in getting that program uh, you know, uh, up this year and certainly for, um, for future disasters that, that just fall outside of the, the regular crop insurance safety net um, sort of regime. Having something like WIP Plus has been very effective for our producers. Thank well, you. Thank you very much. And I appreciate your answers. And I would just like to uh, thank the thank the chair for holding this meeting, this hearing today. And with that, I yield back. Thank you. And now the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Rush, is recognized for five minutes. Mr. Rush. Mr. Chairman. Yes. What is this extraordinary hearing? And I want to thank all the witnesses for uh, their participation. Mr. Chairman, I've spoken before in this committee about uh, my, how my grandfather, who was a farmer uh, in Southwest Georgia, and indeed I was born on his farm. And my grandfather, uh, like too many black farmers over the last 100 years or so, ultimately lost our farm. And I'm concerned that not much has changed, Mr. Chairman, uh, for black farmers over the last decade. According to the a review of USDA data, nearly all of the funds provided to farmers to offset the current impacts of the pandemic COVID-19 went to white farmers. To any of these extraordinary witnesses, what policies will you recommend to the committee to rectify both the historic and also the current discrimination that is too often faced by farmers of color? And specifically, will you include increased transparency of those very subsidies that are so vital to American farmers and to black farmers in your recommendation? Any witness? Mr. Rush is asking any witness to respond to the discrepancy in the receiving of financial assistance for our black farmers. Would any of you care to respond to that? Well, let me comment on that, if uh, I may. Mr. Chairman? Yes. Uh, I, I need some response from the witnesses. Are they prepared to respond, or are they not prepared to, to respond? Uh, Mr. Johnson, are you prepared to respond, or are you not prepared to respond? What did he say? Mr. Doyle, are you prepared to respond? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's about opportunity and communication. We we have an open door if uh, 
if we, I have spoken with, uh, we've reached out to the Black Farmers Association. Uh, we were invited to come to Georgia and speak at uh, an event this past summer. I think COVID uh, disallowed that. But no, we would, we would welcome any comment or input from uh, minority grower associations, absolutely. Uh, we only, we only uh, speak to the issues that our farmers you know, bring to us the, the most important things. And absolutely, I would put uh, minority farms, Arkansas, have, have uh, several have friends. Human, I don't have a human. Ms. Murray, would you respond? Are you, uh, are you prepared to respond to my question or are you unprepared? Yes or no? I think, Ms. Berg, he is referring to you. Could you could you uh, clarify the question for me, please? Okay, let me just. I can't hear him very well. I think that <laughs> what he's asking, Miss Berg, if you could share with us what efforts you all are making in order to assist in the efforts to lift up our black farmers more emphatically, because. <clears throat> our black farmers, by every financial economic indicator, are way behind because of past and present racial discrimination. And so what um, uh, Mr. Rush is asking is what are you specifically and other members doing to address this? Are there any plans or any activities that any of you have to assist us in this situation to rectify the situation financially that's impacting our black farmers? So um, one of the things that um, we do in our weed industry, we represent 20 states across the country. We're always looking for new states to come on board to um, be part of our membership and to be part of the decision-making process um, that we do for the wheat industry. The other one is, is we reach out to USDA, and they have quite a few programs out there that that's that like whether it's beginning farmers minority farmers and so hopefully we support those programs to help um grow improve grower education right mr being black is not a state all right so this is not a state by state issue being black is not a snake. It's a condition. It's a reality. It's a, <clears throat> a, 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 a racial description. But it's Ms. certainly not a snake. Mr. Rush, what we're going to do, each member can be able to provide a written statement to you on this. Yes, and uh, I appreciate your inquiry on a very important issue. And all of our... Um, witnesses may respond in writing if you have specific things to address Mr. Rush's concern. And now I recognize the gentleman from California, Mr. LaMaffa, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First up front, I want to thank you for your moving tribute and prayer for our good friend, Mr. Hagedorn. Yes. He's a, 
a really good man, and his loss hurts around here a lot. Good man. For, for the first time I met him in our building there, so I, I appreciate everybody's kind um, kindness towards his memory and for his wife and, and Jennifer and family. So yes. with that, um, I, I want to just launch right in here. I've, I've been a lot of places today, so I want to get with uh, Jennifer James here from uh, Rice. Um, she uh, uh, had... Uh, earlier testimony about the PLC, the price loss coverage, and uh, also that to the, the other program, agriculture risk coverage can actually be a little better, a little more fle flexible um, when worked with other commodities. And so would you like a little more time to expand on how the flexibility to switch between the two programs is, is helpful? Well, in Arkansas, I have elected the PLC during the entire farm bill. And I'm not as familiar with the California rice growing and, and their choices in the farm bill, but I can speak to the PLC and is, its importance. Um, definitely in the Mid-South rice growing region, uh, it has allowed many rice farmers to stay in business during this time as our prices have been very depressed. Um, and, and we are going into an area where the input costs are extremely high. Um, my, my friends in California are probably experiencing some of the highest in, in the rice industry at this time. Um, so we, we really cannot stress enough that the safety net um, and these reference prices, this, this is our safety net. The crop right. insurance program is, is important to us in certain instances, but the safety net, the PLC program is yeah. vital. So as we are seeing incredibly higher input costs, I mean, it looks like fertilizer for my co-op at home is up at least 80%. And uh, we tried to get our fuel tanks topped off at the tune of at least 50% more in cost from a year ago. So um, so what you're saying is increasing the reference price is going to be extremely helpful towards getting through this next phase for, for rice and I imagine the other commodities too, right? Yes, sir. That would be correct. And we're, we're working to try and figure out the data behind all of that. Okay. So is that uh, something that will be pretty forthcoming here, the data on that, so it can be implemented in our discussions? I'm sure the rice industry will be working on that going forward, yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jacqueline Ford with Cotton, um, an issue for rising input costs uh, affecting cotton as well is that's, I guess, across the whole range, somewhere reaching 25 to 40 percent when you blend fertilizer and fuel and other inputs in there for in cotton as well, man. Maybe that's low. You can correct me on that too. Uh, what do you think this ag committee can be uh, thinking about and incorporating into this in these farm bill discussions in in just input costs and what kind of reality we're going to have to have in the farm bill to uh, better reflect going forward uh, the issues we face? I think just taking margins into consideration. Um, Increased reference prices is good, but also with the increase, we just never know what war and what, you know, the COVID pandemic brought our um, input costs up. So I think considering margins when you're making those decisions for us. You know, one of the things we're driving for immediately is our, we feel our energy costs can be brought back into line somewhat if the United States is producing its own energy yes. and not relying on Middle East or high cost energy, high cost electricity and all that in my home state of California, you know, electricity is going to continue to go through the roof as as generation is taken offline. We had two nuclear power plants not that many years ago. We're going to have 
zero soon. Hydroelectric dams are under threat of being taken out. I'm not sure where these input costs on energy are going to be able to come in line with that kind of policy. So I appreciate that. Now, Nicole Berg from uh, Wheat Growers, um, and I think this isn't just applying to wheat, wheat, wheat payments as well, but um, in your experience, it sounds like it takes, it's taken a year and a half after a crop is harvested for wheat payments to make, the, to make it to the grower. So that hag, that, excuse me, that, that lag can be um, obviously really tough for cash flow and for making payments. And even farmers on the edge might see that uh, they might be going out of business waiting for that payment. Please, please have, what do you say about that to fix it? Yeah, um, during the WIP Plus um, uh, appropriations, it's, it's in the appropriations, and we are now on working on uh, the disaster for 2020 and 2021, and we're now in 2022, and USDA hasn't really even finished rulemaking yet. So we're hoping that with more expedience in, in rolling out these programs through USDA, it would help us farmers help us in that time of need during that disaster and not just, um, you know, a two year later and yeah. people are going out of business. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, hopefully with both thank. COVID nonsense behind us, we'll be sharpening these issues up a little bit. Mr. Chairman, I thank you. Yes. Thank you. The general Mormon from Illinois, Ms. Bustos, who is chair of the subcommittee on general farm commodities and risk management is recognized now for five minutes. Thank you very much, much Mr. Chair. Uh, let me jump right into this. The, the 2018 Farm Bill requires the use of crop insurance yield data as the first source of data in the ARC program. So my questions are to Mr. Doyle and to Mr. Edgington. Um, and if there's anybody else who wants to chime in, please feel free. But uh, for, for the two of you specifically, um, has the use of crop insurance yield data improved how ARC has functioned? Mr. Doyle, we can start with you. Yes, absolutely. I, I think it has. It's more accurate data. Uh, I believe averages, uh, as you know, farms yields from high to low uh, across soil types and fertility levels. So that crop insurance tied back to an FSA number is definitely more accurate, in my opinion. Thank you, Mr. Doyle. Mr. Edgington, if you can answer. Yeah, I, I totally agree with with uh, Mr. Doyle, and and you know we've we've made a lot of strides on the uh, crop insurance world, talking to the uh, farm service agency offices, and and how this all works for the farmers as they produce produce yields and, and provide the information to the various resources that need it. And so we are definitely making strides. I think it's an area that we can continue to improve, though, because technology is helping us in that area in a lot, in a lot of ways. Okay, very good. Anybody else want to uh, chime in on that, that question? All right, if not, um, uh, let, let me move on to my next question. And again, this will be for Mr. Doyle and Mr. Edgington, uh, for starters anyway. Uh, the USDA has undertaken efforts to streamline the acreage reporting process for producers who participate in the Title I commodity programs and in federal crop insurance. Has this streamlining initiative worked and has the reporting process been simplified for producers? And Mr. Doyle, you first, please. So, you know, I think COVID has put us in a challenging year for the last couple of years. So we haven't had uh, a lot of face-to-face -face conversations in the FSA office. Anything that makes uh, reporting easier, more accurate, less redundancy, I think will help 
help us uh, you know enter the programs that we uh, so need to more efficiently and effectively so I would uh, I would say the verdict's still out for us but I, I, I applaud the uh, the improvements to reporting yeah and, you know I, I agree with him on that and you know one of the areas that I think we've been challenged on and COVID's been trying to maybe show us some things to work on is is the age uh, grouping that we have with farmers and how they're comfortable in reporting. Um, there's a generation just a little bit older than Brad and I that are, I mean, there's days I'm not very comfortable with the computer, but I, I certainly do better than than the generation that's thinking about retiring. And and so they're, they're struggling, whether it's with their crop insurance agent or with, with the FSA office. And them not being able to go into the offices has been a real hindrance. Um, they've, they've worked their way through it. Um, our offices, at least in my area, have been very flexible in trying to help people, um, you know, whether we've done things online or, or other ways. But um, we're making strides. Um, and it, it's, uh, we love technology. Uh, right up until we got to use it to give reports, it seems like. And and so um, we'll, we'll get there and we're getting better. But uh, I think there's always room for a little bit of improvement. Okay, I'm going to try to squeeze in one more question, and this will be for the panel. So whoever wants to jump in, uh, a broad question. I, I know the perspectives on ARC and PLC over the past couple of years have, have varied depending on the commodity. Uh, so as this committee continues our oversight work and looks ahead to the next farm bill, what are the metrics that we all should use when we evaluate the effectiveness of our existing programs? And maybe we'll have one of the other uh, people start first and then anybody else who'd like to chime in. I think we definitely need to address reference price because it's been mentioned several times here. But, but it's also important to remember that we don't want reference price to dictate the planted acres. We want to use it as the safety net but we don't want it to drive or change our decisions uh, from year to year. We want to use it as a tool. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, uh, Congressman, uh, Congresswoman Bustos, um, I would say at least from um, the sugar perspective, certainly looking at uh, loan rates and how close, closely aligned they are with um, our cost of production would be another, another metric to look at. Thank you. Um, but Madam Congresswoman, I think uh, one of the things in the wheat industry we would like to do, we work on such thin margins, and we don't necessarily want to make a bunch of money, but we want to at least try to break even on these safety net programs and try to keep our family farms in business. So I guess I would look at, at definitely the bottom line of what, how much do we make or how much don't we make and how we plan for our risk management process. In my area, we have six inches of rainfall a year. Last year, I didn't harvest a third of my farm. Um, and so I had to utilize the safety net of crop insurance and it was there. And I'd have to say it's kept the far family farm in business. Thank you. The gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Baird, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I, I, too, would like to start off by expressing my um, loss for my friend, Mr. Hagedorn from Minnesota. You know, his insight and his wisdom really contributed to, the, to this committee and his, his home state of Minnesota. So I just want you to know I do miss him. Aside from that, uh, Mr. Chairman and uh, Ranking Member, I really appreciate having this hearing. I appreciate us getting started on the Farm Bill. 
And I appreciate all the witnesses sharing your insight with us here today. So well, the one thing I want to start off with is, um, and maybe all of you can respond to this, but Mr. Doyle, um, you know, I keep hearing in, in my area, Indiana, uh, that they feel the safety nets almost have to fall too low before they actually kick in and really give any kind of a safety net. And so as we look at the ARC and the PLC uh, and otherwise relatively successful programs, I think, uh, do you feel that the reference prices have adequately kept up with the market trends and the input costs and your overall break-even cost for production? And if not, how do you feel we as a committee should look at those reference prices and how should they be evaluated? Thank you for the question. Uh, I think Purdue University has a break-even cost of around $11.07 for soybeans per bushel, and the current reference price is $8.40. Uh, as been mentioned here several times today about the input costs, we as farmers make most of our decisions the fall prior to planning. Uh, we, we make a budget as we, we, we need to, but a lot has changed since then, so our profitability is, is, is at risk now. And raising that reference price to a certain level, absolutely, uh, we need to do that. What that level is, I believe we're not ready to quite agree on yet. We have a lot of economists uh, and experts who will, will work on that, and we would be glad to present that at a, at a later date. Super. I really appreciate you mentioning my alma mater, too, that Purdue. American Soybean Association was founded 101 years ago on the Fouts Farm in, in Indiana. Super. Thank you. Anyone else care to, to comment about the reference prices? So, you know, the corn growers are just kind of getting started in their whole process. And, and we, we're really grassroots. I mean, we start down at the county level and it goes to state. And, and next week at Commodity Classic, there'll be a lot of discussion along a lot of this. Um, but we've also done surveys and questions because there are... There are regional differences, even with corn production. So, yep. you know, it's, it's an area that, that uh, is still under study for us um, because you ask a really tough question of what should the price be? Um, if, if we had a stable market every year that it's whatever this is, that's an easier discussion than the volatility that we live in, both on the input side and on the and on the products. So um, it, it's a very challenging discussion, and, and we will definitely be taking some time to, uh, to analyze where we should be at. I appreciate that very much. I've got a minute and 51 seconds, so I have three more. If either, any one of you three want to comment, I'd appreciate it. I'd be happy to chime in. Um, for the rice industry, I think I've mentioned it several times that the, the reference price is, is not working for us. And I know we're looking forward, but currently um, the 21 um, PLC is going to be about one-third of the 2020, and for the 22 crop we're about to plant, it, it appears we will have no PLC, but the market is just slightly above there. So we're, we're in a very um, tenuous area trying to make those planning decisions uh, going forward, and so it's very important to the rice industry. Thank you. We got, we got a minute and eight seconds. <clears throat> On behalf of the cotton industry, I can tell you that we're we're very similar to Mr. Edgington. We're um, we have people meeting um, regionally, and because um, cotton is is huge too, and um, cotton in Texas is different than cotton in Georgia, and cotton in California is different than cotton in Georgia. So um, we're listening to all of our different um, sectors and getting everybody's input, and um, all of that probably it'll be the end of the year probably before we have all of those. Um, 
ideas and interest um, organizations um, combined to get our um, recommendations. Thank you. Any others? No, that you were we're also um, both from the the cane side and the beat side. We're also um, looking towards talking to all of our members and finding out what are the most uh, salient recommendations to to provide to the committee. So we're also in the same process at this point in time. But certainly, everybody, uh, as as I mentioned today, and um, certainly as you, if you you've highlighted, uh, are watching these cost of productions and. Uh, and inflationary trends towards our input costs uh, with uh, a great deal of concern. Thank you. The gentlewoman from Washington, Ms. Fryer, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and welcome to all of our witnesses. Uh, first, I want to thank Ms. Berg uh, for testifying today from my home state of Washington. It is wonderful to see you again, and I so appreciate your sharing your expertise with all of us. Um, I was going to focus on the wheat industry today, and so I have a couple questions for you. Let me just set the stage by saying that Washington uh, state produces close to half of the nation's soft white wheat, which is very special, and approximately 90% of that is exported. Uh, in your testimony, you noted that the wheat market has been like a roller coaster uh, lately over the last few years with severe weather events, trade disagreements, the pandemic, uh, supply chain issues disrupting normal operations, even having China decide that they're going to grow their own wheat and not ha have any imports uh, some years. Um, I've been hearing from growers in my district about the challenges of getting their crops overseas due to supply chain disruptions, mostly caused, caused by exploitative practices of foreign-owned shipping companies, and that mainly affects hay and wheat. Um, in recent months, I've been hearing the opposite side of this about supply chain disruptions in the other direction, um, uh, raising the cost of inputs and, as a result of the similar processes. So, um, Ms. Berg, I, I just thought I would ask in a, a general sense, in light of the ongoing drought in, in the Pacific Northwest, higher input costs, the supply chain issues, I wanted to just ask generally how Title I Farm Bill programs are working and, and if they're not working well, what are you hearing most from the farmers in, uh, in your area? Well, thank you, Congresswoman, and I want to thank you for all your hard work with regard to um, containers and shipping, is shipping issues, because I know you've been a champion for our state um, working these issues for us farmers. Um, I guess what I'm hearing in the state is with regard to USDA programs is we are definitely in a, um, uh, a change of um, staffing at USDA with regard to people are retiring. We have new people coming on board. And so with these retirements, I think that there needs to be definitely training for, for quality assurances in administering these programs. And then um, I do look forward to the day we can go back into the offices and actually meet with folks um, over the online work. It has worked. Um, is some some. Farmers are grumbling because they, I mean, there were farmers. We don't 
don't want to be in behind a computer. Uh, we want to go into the office and have somebody help facilitate us um, signing up for programs. And so that's kind of what I hear on the countryside. Um, you addressed my volatility issue that, that the wheat industry has. I think um, it needs to be brought out that a third of the wheat production comes from, in the whole world, comes from Ukraine and Russia. So we look like we're going to have definite volatility. Um, last week we were up limit and then we're down limit. So I, I definitely see this as a huge volatility issue for our industry with regard to price. Thank you for commenting on both of those issues. First, uh, I will tell you that it feels like we're really close to being able to do things in, per in person. We're here in this committee room, not in masks, in this hopefully long period of being able to feel safe and um, and we feel that same angst. None of us like to be behind computers all the time. Um, I was going to ask, since you touched on Ukraine and Russia, um, you are looking at this as uncertainty and volatility. Is there, is, there any, um, is there any benefit for exporters from the United States to be able to help alleviate and fill these gaps, alleviate hunger around the world? I hope there is. I hope this becomes an opportunity for American farmers and American wheat farmers um, with regard to a little bit of disruption with regard to supply and demand kind of concepts um, as we move forward. But um, the wheat industry also, we, we don't want to see people in war. Right. And so uh, we, do, we don't necessarily want, want them to have a hardship either um, for their country and their region. And this would be specifically filling temporary gaps. So thank, yeah. thank you. And thank you for those comments. We, we agree. Um, as we look ahead to the Farm Bill, um, are there some ways specifically that, that uh, we can sustain some necessary changes for you? In addition to that gap, you talked about a year and a half to two years of getting funding reimbursed. Are there other ways that we can help? I think uh, streamlining, um, I know that it was d t discussed earlier today, um, streamlining the process would, would help farmers. Also in education and outreach to farmers of when's the sign up. I think, I think we could do better in um, promoting and working with maybe it's the wheat growers helping promote the message of get in and sign up. Um, I think that that would be an important. The witness could continue with a written response to her. Thank you very much. And now the gentleman from Iowa, Mr. Fenstra, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson. You know, my district is the top ethanol producing district in the entire nation. Biofuels are a low cost, low carbon complement for other fuel sources, and it can be net, negative, net carbon negative in the next several years. Biofuels are good for the environment, they're good for our farmers, and they're good for our consumers. We've all seen how Russia chose to needlessly attack Ukraine, and the consequences of this will be significant to our agricultural community and even the Farm Bill. Today, the U.S. imports 206,000 barrels of crude oil from Russia every single day. This must stop. We must become energy independent, and biofuels are the ready, ready to fill that gap, both domestically and overseas. 
Mr. Eddington, thank you for being here from our great state of Iowa. It's a great pleasure to see you. I appreciate your testimony. You mentioned in your written remarks that 5.3 billion bushels of corn was used for ethanol in 2021, and there is more capacity to increase fuel production beyond that. To what extent can the ethanol in energy increase energy independence, and how can the Farm Bill partner with the industry's goal to provide this uh, opportunity where we can be energy independent through biofuels? Representative Feenstra, thank you for that question. Um, you know, ethanol is a fantastic product, and it, it, it does two things. It provides energy and it cleans the environment. Um, greenhouse gas reductions are, you know, the latest studies are coming out over 50% reduction compared to traditional fuels, and we just keep getting better. Um, and so a, it, it kind of covers two things. Energy independence, um, we immediately have more of ethanol that's available sitting in tanks that could go into uh, cars and vehicles today and tomorrow. Um, you know, E15, we lost that um, on our year-round basis on what is a very interesting wording uh, situation. Uh, we could get that back, at least on a temporary basis. That would that would definitely put more fuel into the supply that's domestic. It's here already. Um, we, along with our friends, um, you know, on the on the diesel side of of renewables, um, have have a great product, and we have more capacity. More plants are being built. Uh, plants are able to expand. And we currently use, you know, a little over 5 billion bushels of corn um, for ethanol production, but we're putting up almost a billion and a half back into the livestock feed as actually a higher quality product. So it's really a great situation that we've got with corn and, and the ability um, with ethanol to, to simply help uh, let the United States be more energy independent on its own. Yeah, I agree 100%. Mr. Doyle, was sort of the same question with biodiesel, right? I mean, we have this great opportunity, and do you see anything that we need to look at uh, to be proactive in the Farm Bill uh, to address this and that we can be energy independent? So soybean oil, as you mentioned, bio, biofuel, uh, actually 66% reduction in greenhouse gases. Once, what once was a byproduct is now driving the price of, of soybeans. So any support to our refineries within the U.S. to encourage any kind of tax credits would be very beneficial. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I just think this is something the Farm Bill needs to look at uh, to, to get us uh, not reliant on the 206 uh, thousand gallons of, of uh, or 206,000 barrels a day of uh, Russian uh, oil. I uh, got another question. I used to be a crop agent, and I know I had a lot of anxiety when the last farm bill came around when it came to crop insurance. It seemed like it worked out okay. I know there's a lot of bumps in the road yet. Uh, Mr. Ennington and Mr. Doyle, what do you see as we move forward? I, I, we talked about a lot of the protections uh, that are out there ready, but do you see any nuances that we need to change uh, to make that, that insurance better, that crop insurance better, to, to uh, make it easier for the farmer, whether it be at the FSA office or in general's, you know, the, 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 the policies that are currently out there? So, you know, one of the things I think that we've got the opportunity is simply to expand what we can work with under side of crop insurance. And, and that's what the PACE program is about um, that, that has come out. And, and it's all about supplemental nitrogen or side dress nitrogen, which is kind of a two-win situation because you're doing be more efficient with your nitrogen as you apply it. The challenge you have, and I do this 100% on our farm, we split apply all of our nitrogen, is if the month of June in Iowa is really, really wet, 
you could be caught short. And corn is very nitrogen dependent. And so um, the idea of the insurance, and it's being rolled out in 11 states, test counties, is that if a weather event causes economic harm because you couldn't finish nitrogen, um, this this could be you know, be covered through that. So that's that's one of the pieces. And I assume the same for soybeans. And so, I, yes, ninety uh, percent coverage for soybeans. Yep, very yep, important. Yep. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Now you'll back. Thank you. Thank you. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Bishop, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman and uh, Mr. Ranking Member, for holding this hearing. Uh, and thank you to our witnesses for attending. And let me offer my apologies to Ms. Rogers for the technical difficulties in my uh, introduction. Uh, but I certainly want to welcome you and Ms. Ford uh, uh, to this committee. Uh, Ms. Rogers, in your testimony, uh, you mentioned that there are a number of growers uh, in specific regions uh, that have produced peanuts for years but don't have access to the PLC program because of a lack of base acres. Uh, we know that base acres will help young and beginning farmers of covered crop commodities. How important is base acre enrollment uh, to the industry, particularly to young and beginning farmers? And how can our committee be helpful in addressing this issue? And, and what are your thoughts on the voluntary update of base we're looking into that matter. Um, definitely, we have a number of growers that would benefit from um, an update of base acres, but there's some other options for that as well. And we are economists looking into that, looking into um, the different options and the cost of those options and the ways that we can help those growers, but not um, be detrimental to the growers, because this affects all growers and lots of commodities and lots of the U.S., as you know. So we are hoping that in the future we can work with the committee to come up with a solution to address this base issue. Uh, thank you. Um, Mr. LaMarfa touched on this issue, um, but one of my priorities on the committee is appropriating subscriptions for a permanent solution to uh, disaster relief. Uh, though it continues to be elusive, uh, there are improvements that, that really can be made. And of course, the stopgap measures like ad hoc legislation uh, has been indicated uh, creates delays. So we have to find a way to expedite the process. Uh, you talked about the need for either a permanent disaster program or other policy options to address disaster conditions, Ms. Ford. Can you talk about what a disaster aid could look like and how Congress can be helpful in expediting the, in the processing of that relief. And Mr. Coleman, could you weigh in also on what permanent disaster relief would look like for specialty crop producers? Ms. Ford? Yes. Um, I'm not really prepared to answer that specific, but I will get with um, the council and get you an answer to that. Okay. Mr. Coleman? Um, I'm, I'm not really prepared either, uh, though the one thing that I will say about uh, the crop insurance uh, is what we're finding with these specialty crops is uh, our proven yields. Um, it, it, you know, if you have a real marginal year, uh, the, the assistance or the, the packages from the FSA and the crop insurance don't match up and you end up with no insurance at all. 
And so that is a concern uh, uh, for our growers that with these specialty crops, uh, we, we need to find a way to, to make those numbers uh, work better. So if we do have just, uh, you know, uh, right below or just, just borderline a disaster, we can still qualify for payments. Okay. Thank you. You guys have, have come and uh, we depend upon you because you're where the rubber meets the road. And as we move into the new farm bill, uh, we want to help uh, forge solutions to these, these problems. And if you could really, really give some thought to it and talk with others in, in your industries to help us so that uh, we can craft uh, in the new farm bill uh, possibly some, some policy solutions that will address uh, these concerns because they are, are very serious. And, and I know that uh, you probably uh, don't have uh, uh, fully, fully uh, uh, reasoned solutions at this point. But as we move forward, uh, help us uh, so we can try to, try to work it out. Because we want to have policies in place that work for everybody, especially crops and for all of our farmers uh, that uh, will, will really continue to help us to produce the highest quality and the safest and most abundant and economic agriculture anywhere. So thank you all for your testimony, but uh, help us as we go forward uh, with the Farm Bill in uh, crafting a solution. So thank you so much for your, your coming and sharing with us, and we look forward to hearing from you going forward. Thank you. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Allen, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and it's, uh, uh, I thank you for holding this important hearing. Obviously, uh, the commodity industry is uh, very complex, and uh, uh, I've, I've enjoyed, I've had a, a, a competing hearing today, but I've tried to check in and, and uh, uh, trying to learn more about, uh, you know, is there any way to make this process simpler? <laughs> I mean, it uh, like we talk about people who don't have, you know, don't qualify because they don't have the acreage or something like that. I mean, I don't I don't quite understand those things. But one thing that I'm hearing back home a lot and, of course, commodity prices are up, uh, corn, cotton, soybeans, wheat. Uh, but uh, production costs, uh, imp input costs are rising as well, which it, which is a real problem. Uh, for, for, for commodities that, that have not seen price increases, there is not additional revenue to offset the higher input costs. Then, in bearing a, barring a significant increase in yield, net farm income could be lower in 2022. Uh, will, this, uh, will this lead to calls for, for Congress to design some sort of a program that responds to pr these production cost increases? And I would ask each of you to respond uh, to that question starting with uh, Ms. Ms. James. Certainly, and, and I, crafting what that might look like, I certainly don't know today, but I can tell you that with these higher input costs and the price of rice that has not elevated, um, the rice industry, look, the rice farmers look at losing about $500 million in this next crop year. So it is a very disturbing and important issue that we must continue to discuss. How are you going to overcome that? Well... From a farmer's standpoint, um, the unfortunate answer would be not to plant rice and plant another crop, and that is not good long-term for our industry. Yeah. Yeah. Ms. Ford? Yeah, the PLC program has worked well for us in the past. Um, this year, people are going to be utilizing stacks um, more, but we are concerned with um, 
input costs rising and even with cotton at a dollar over a dollar today, we're at a break even point, which is really sad because normally we're really, really excited about a dollar cotton. So um, input costs now, um, fertilizer is 120% from what it was last year. Some chemicals are double, um, fuels up 40%. So our input costs are up significantly. And um, so definitely need to um, reevaluate the reference price and, and what we need to do. You know, as I said earlier, that, that's a tough question. Um, you know, we've, we've, uh, we, we, you do these farm bills about every five years, and you try to look at averages and lengths, and, and have we moved into a different price parameter on input costs, um, you know, long term? Um, that, it's really tough to forecast like that, and we've got to use the USDA and other economists to help us with that. And we're going to be looking into all of that as we, as we think about this. Um, it, it's probably... Uh, against the nature of most farmers to want to say that, that they're going to use, um, you know, some USDA program to help them out every single year. Uh, that's not their, that's not their style. Um, most of the time it's leave me alone. Let me produce what exactly. I'm doing and leave me alone. Um, so that always comes into the discussions we have, but we're a ways away from having that decision. <laughs> well, see, yeah, we want to leave you alone, but the problem is uh, this war on fossil fuel has caused the input cr prices to do this. And this administration's war on fossil fuel is the problem. And, and th that is an event outside of, of your control. And that's why I asked this question. Yes, Ms. Thank you, um, Mr. Congressman. Um, input costs, just to give you an example, um, glyphosate, Roundup, it uh, used to be able to purchase it for $15, and now we're hearing prices quoted as $82. So that kind of gives you a perspective of increases in these input costs. Farmers are survivors. Um, we'll try to survive through this this um, dark time. A lot of us did some pre-purchasing, did uh, fertilizer spreading last fall, and hopefully um, it doesn't catch up to us too much with these rising costs of, and putting family farms out of business. I, I know, but it's so unnecessary because if we would return to the previous administration's energy problems, energy policy, we wouldn't be having, we wouldn't be seeing uh, uh, the cost of a barrel of oil doing this. I mean, go ahead, sir. So, yeah, not only will the price, has the price increased, a lot of uh, it's uncertainty for the supply. We might not even have the crop protection products to finish this crop out. If we could bring manufacturing back to the U.S., that would be critical for our uh, longevity in this industry. Yeah, and we've got to bring all essential manufacturing back to this country. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I am out of time, and I yield back. Thank you, sir. The gentleman from California, Ms. Car Mr. Carbajal, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Santa Barbara County in my district was historically home to sugar beet production, and California continues to be a sugar-producing state. I am a strong supporter of our current sugar policy, and I'm looking forward to discussions on how to maintain and strengthen it in the upcoming Farm Bill. Dr. Johansson, U.S. sugar policy has allowed American sugar producers to invest in on-farm and factory improvements to become even more efficient and more sustainable. Per acre yields for sugar beet and sugar cane have both sharply increased over the past 20 years. Can you explain how the current U.S. sugar program has helped producers invest in their operations? Congressman, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, 
The sugar program, as, as, as you mentioned, um, has been effective at uh, helping our producers um, improve efficiencies, increase in productivity on their fields as well. Um, as you mentioned, over the past 20 years or so, we've seen production increase um, by about 16% for both sugarcane, sugar beet production in the U.S., all, all while farming 11% fewer acres. And that's just a testament to, to general um, ingenuity on the, on the part of our producers. We've heard about a lot of that today here on, on the committee. Um, uh, the American farmer is, is the most productive and most efficient at responding uh, to challenges. And, uh, and we're seeing that play out uh, on our sugar beet and sugar cane farms uh, across the country. Um, the, the current policy, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is, is extremely important, even though it comes at no cost um, uh, to the taxpayer. It's operated at zero cost for, um, for the last or 17 of the last 18 years, and of course, uh, forecast to cost zero dollars going forward for the next 10 years by USDA. Um, it's, it's extremely important um, because of the issue that we see in the global sugar market being so distorted by uh, foreign country oversubsidization of their sectors um, and the dumping of that sugar on the global market, which drives down costs, uh, the price of the global sugar, um, uh, global sugar prices to below the cost of producing that sugar. And of course, um, you know, that's, uh, that's something that, that would effectively drive our producers out of production if, if, if that program wasn't, um, wasn't supported by the committee. And, and we look forward to certainly um, your continued support on the committee um, and looking at strengthening that safety net going forward uh, as part of the other commodities as well. Um, looking at trying to align our, um, uh, our supports, whether that be loan rate or um, the other programs that have been talked about today better with cost production uh, and input costs. Thank you, Dr. Johnson, uh, Johansson. I'm sorry for screwing up your name there, I apologize. Um, with the COVID-19 pandemic impacting our supply chain and disrupting so many sectors of our economy and agriculture industry, can you share with me how these challenges have impacted the domestic sugar industry? That's another great question. Thanks for asking. Of course, uh, COVID-19 is the pandemic has affected all producers and all their markets, uh, both here in the United States and certainly we've seen abroad. And of course, the conflict that we're seeing between Russia and Ukraine is obviously going to be putting um, a lot of energy markets, fertilizer markets and commodity markets in turmoil. Um, over the past uh, couple of years, um, certainly our our Sugarcane and sugar sugar beet um, producers have been cognizant of this issue and have put in place um, safety measures at all of our mills, refineries, uh, processing facilities to safeguard all of our employees. And we've done a very good job of that. Um, certainly, we've been uh, concerned with labor in general. Um, it's a big issue for for us as as it is for a lot of the other commodities that are represented here. Um, and you know we're continually trying to um, both provide, you know, safe working conditions for all of our employees, but also, um, uh, but also secure labor, whether that's through the guest worker programs or, or, um, uh, you know, other, other labor sources here in the United States, of course, the labor market's extremely tight right now. We certainly would support um, and, and uh, look towards Congress to, to working on the issue of improving, um, you know, labor supply. Um, but ultimately, uh, with the pandemic, yes, 
Um, hopefully, as has been mentioned, we're coming out of, uh, of that returning to more normal conditions. Um, would look forward to, to hopefully joining you next time in person and look, it would be able to provide additional responses in writing later. Thank you. Dr. Johansson, uh, I'm out of time. I and, and the gentleman from South Dakota, Mr. Johnson, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to dive a little deeper into the line of questioning that uh, Mr. Bishop had. And I know as we talk about uh, ad hoc disaster relief or maybe moving toward uh, some a more permanent program, we think about the interplay with crop insurance. That's obviously most clear. But I guess I want to start with Mr. Boyle. Um, you know, some of the other uh, testifiers didn't have strongly held opinions on uh, Mr. Bishop's question, but I want to give you an opportunity, sir. As we think about disaster relief, are there Title I interactions that we should be thinking about vis-a-vis um, -vis the next farm bill? Your thoughts? So I think we, we need to see it, how it's designed. It de would depend on how it's designed and what its purpose is. We as soybean farmers rely heavily on crop insurance. Ninety percent of soybean producers uh, partake in, in crop insurance. So it, that is the number one vital tool. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, ARC and PLC have, have been used very little over, over the last few years. Um, but I think we're, we're always open to some sort of protection beyond what is the norm. So we would be in support of a program. Uh, you know, when disaster comes up, we, we appreciate the ability of this House uh, Ag Committee and, and our government to come in, step in, and support us when needed, uh, because many of those uh, disasters are, are, you know, out of our control. Uh, we never planned for them, and they can devastate the family farm operation, uh, you know, in one single one single crop year. So, uh, Mr. Doyle, does uh, American Soybeans, uh, do, do you all have a, a policy on whether you prefer ad hoc disaster relief or maybe a, a new permanent program, a new standing program, rather. Uh, not really. I mean, we 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 go to the farm bill. That is our our go to. Uh, we would, as conditions or instances would come up, we would yeah we would definitely uh, seek support. But uh, as of right now, um, we're we're pretty happy with what the farm bill produces other than the ask for change in reference price as we requested things like that i think are are uh, protect us enough along with crop insurance uh, mr edgington how about for corn uh, do y'all have a strongly held opinion on ad hoc versus uh, standing disaster relief as we look toward the next farm bill and are there interactions between Title I programs we should keep in mind if we were going to make any change to disaster relief? So, you know, the history has been that we've been more in the ad hoc camp um, and partially because there's been, I mean, I've been farming for close to 40 years and there were long stretches that we didn't need uh, much for disaster programs. And then Mother Nature runs a cycle and it's like, well, we've got to have something almost every year somewhere in the country. Um, but so that, you know, the ad hoc seems to kind of work for that. Uh, obviously, there's relationships between, you know, ARC and PLC and, and crop insurance and WIP and, and then you can move over into some of the other programs. But um, we, we've got a pretty solid safety net program um, for most commodities in, in the current farm bill. And Mother Nature is still our biggest wild card, uh, will probably always be our biggest wild card. 
And so to, to write a program that's permanent um, to based on what Mother Nature is going to do is really a challenge when we don't know what she's going to do. So for both Mr. Boyle, Mr. Edgington, we've talked reference price, reference price, uh, reference price today, and I get it clearly that's going to have to be a, a serious a focus of the committee's work here over the course of the next year or so. Are there other things with regard to uh, ARC and PLC that we need to be uh, mindful of as we roll into the farm bill? I think just to mention of, of base acres, a lot of the young producers are, you know, only have 10 or 20% of their farm base acres. So the opportunity for them is almost non-existent. So any, any and I'm sorry, Mr. Doyle, I should have included base acres in a topic that we've pretty well yes, fleshed out or are in the process of fleshing out. So other than those two things, is there a third? And maybe those one and two are so big, we don't need a third target, but I wanted to give you an opportunity. Well, you, you might have the opportunity um, on to deal with yields and what things are based off of on, on that because um, our yields, and I think everybody up here has mentioned it, um, we continue to improve them with genetics and, and um, opportunities that we get, and our costs go up because of that, and, and usually there's an association. And so um, as we look at maybe increasing the base yield to go with the base acres that are there or back and forth, it becomes an area that also maybe should look, be looked at. Thank you very much. The gentleman's time has expired. The gentlewoman from Minnesota, Ms. Craig, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, for having this uh, hearing first and foremost today on Title I programs. Uh, corn and soybean farmers in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District rely on these programs for stability, and I'm really grateful to the witnesses uh, today for sharing their input and how the tweaks made in the 2018 Farm Bill have played out. As the conversations for the next Farm Bill ramp up, I'm curious to learn more about how Title I programs like ARC and PLC have worked for family farmers during the instability of the past few years. I recognize that um, some of that was covered by my colleague, uh, Dusty Johnson, uh, but maybe we'll go into just a little bit uh, more here. Um, with that in mind, I'll turn to President um, Edgington for my first question. Uh, Mr. President, as you know, corn growers on family farms in Minnesota's 2nd District provide food for people across the country and the world. They also provide the key input for ethanol, which grows markets in Minnesota and helps to decarbonize our transportation sector. That's why I'm pushing every opportunity to ensure that the year-round sales of E15 whether it's uh, through my year-round fuel choice act or another legislative route. That's less of a farm bill conversation, of course, but I mention it here because biofuels are such a critical part of our collective, collective effort to support renewable fuels. When it comes to the upcoming farm bill, I'm hoping you can provide a little bit more perspective on any additional flexibilities that NCGA thinks might be impactful for family farmers moving forward. Are there any additional tweaks like the ARC and PLC election flexibility change in the 2018 Farm Bill that might make a difference? Representative Craig, thank you for that. And, and thank you for your support of ethanol um, and all the things that you've done for us on that. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we, we conducted a study. It's over 900 people um, that responded and, and we're working through that data that 
answers will answer some of those questions that you've that you've asked and we'll have more of that information this summer as we, as we move forward and and how to how to maybe fine tune or how to adjust some of the current farm bill programs um, as they uh, as they reflect on corn growers I think we'll have a really interesting discussion next week in in New Orleans around um, some tweaks we always do at our policy sessions and then we meet again in July right here in, in Washington DC so we'll, we'll be bringing some some of those things that you're asking for but at, at this point we're still working through the process well thank you we look forward to uh, getting an update and obviously very interested uh, in your suggestions I want to turn to President Doyle next uh, President Doyle thank you so much for your comments and focus on the role that the ARC and PLC reference price for soybeans is playing in decision-making for bean growers. The fact that the last time a um, PLC payment was triggered for soybeans was 2005 indicates a, a lack of responsiveness in the program, especially when some soybean farmers experience negative margins for their crops during the 2018 and 2019 trade wars. With that in mind, can you speak to what ASA thinks might make sense for a reasonable reference price? It's, you know, soybean prices are, are driven by supply and demand. And right now the prices are good, um, driven by demand. The safety net, PLC or ARC, is, it's a safety net. It's what we go to when times are bad. And I would have to say times are, are pretty decent right now and good for soybeans. We have high demand. But to give you an exact reference price, uh, I believe I'm not qualified for that. But we will in dive, deep dive into that this year. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Purdue set a, a, a break-even price around $11. You know, somewhere near that may be where we need to be. Uh, we have, I think, sufficient data coming in. We'll, we'll continue to have... Uh, talks uh, with our state affiliates, and we need all of that data to come in along with the uh, with buyers and see what long term demand and supply will be, and, and hopefully we can shed some light on what would be a more fair and safe uh, reference price for soybeans. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Doyle. Uh, let me just ask real quick: uh, any other farm bill updates you'd like the committee to consider? I think for soybeans, uh, Minnesota is one of the strongest on crush. Uh, any support of oil uh, and renewable fuel standard would be beneficial to our industry. Awesome. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you. The general lady from Louisiana, Ms. Letlow, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson for holding this very important hearing to review the key commodity support programs authorized by the Farm Bill. And I just have to say, I love seeing so many women in agriculture witnesses. And as many of you know, agriculture is the backbone of my district and is one of the largest economic forces for the area. From rice to cotton to soybeans to sugar, all which are represented here today, my district has been blessed with the fertile soil to grow just about anything. In fact, according to the USDA Census of Agriculture, my district alone accounts for 49% of total agriculture sale, sales in the state. It's the hardworking farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners throughout my district that I'm proud to represent on this committee and drafting the next farm bill needs to remain at the forefront of our vital work going forward. 
Ms. James, in your testimony, you mentioned the study I requested of Texas A&M University's Agricultural and Food Policy Center to determine the economic impact of higher fertilizer prices on its representative farms. I am truly appreciative on AFPC's hard work to complete this analysis, but I'm concerned by the findings which show steeply increasing, increasing input costs across the board for commodities and particularly rice. Farms experiencing the highest fertilizer cost increase per acre. Ms. James, could you please speak to how this tremendous increase in input costs are affecting you? And are you struggling to find certain inputs to be able to successfully plant a crop this year? And then secondly, while we all understand that traditional farm bill programs discussed today aren't designed to react to these unprecedented input economic challenges, how could we look to the next farm bill to help alleviate these un unpredictable production challenges in the future? Well, thank you and thank you for your question. Um, of course, the study that you referenced uh, actually the average per acre increase um, in the rice industry was $174.20. And, and I stress that that is the average. So there are many producers who are going to experience a much higher cost per acre um, this season. And this equals about uh, over $500 million increase in the rice industry will be spent to produce this crop. So, yes, we're struggling. Uh, we're trying to make planning decisions. We are, um, I mean, in my, on my particular farm, I will be planting less rice acres this year than we normally do. Uh, we've gone through our budgets and have made adjustments um, in line items that we can. We're trying to choose less expensive rice varieties that will still yield as well. We're modifying our pre-plant um, fertilizer applications uh, and just trying to make good decisions so that we can still grow rice and support our industry. Um, we are concerned about the inputs. Um, one input in particular is the nitrogen uh, nitrogen fertilizer timing for rice is extremely important for the yield um, benefits, and so we are concerned that we may not have that availability at the proper time for the plant to do its best job. Um, looking forward to the next farm bill, as I've mentioned, the crop insurance products that we have in rice are not as effective for us. We are able to grow rice in a controlled environment, and therefore, most years have a, a good yield. Therefore, something in the revenue department is always important for us to be sure and protect our revenue. As we referenced earlier in the committee, the PLC for rice is extremely important. And um, the fact that the market is just above that is very disappointing right now. Well, thank you so much for your testimony and this insight. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. All right, thank you very much. Uh, members, before we move to our next questionnaire, I have just a brief announcement. One of our witnesses, Ms. Yu Ray Bari, has a family emergency and has to leave. Any questions for her uh, can be asked for the record to receive response in writing. Thank you for that. And now the gentlewoman from Iowa, Ms. Actney, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott, and thank you to our witnesses for being here today. 
I appreciate your testimony and look forward to continuing to work on with you all as we review the 2018 Farm Bill and look ahead to 2023, something I've been very much looking forward to in my role. Um, I especially want to welcome Mr. Edgington. Chris, it's always good to have an Iowan testifying uh, on this committee. So welcome and thank you for the hard work that you do for our community and Iowa and on behalf of Iowa farmers. Very appreciative. Uh, as you know, last year prices and production were strong in Iowa and they look positive for the future, but farmers have experienced significant uh, volatility and uncertainty over the last few years due to de demand destruction caused by the trade war and of course by the pandemic. So farmers were able to survive those challenges due to strong farm safety provided through crop insurance, Title I programs and recent ad hoc programs. So it's imperative that we look at all these and support these farm safety programs and improve them where necessary. Uh, so a couple of questions along this line. Mr. Edgington, as you noted in your testimony, farmers now have the opportunity to decide between, between ARC and PLC each year, rather than making a multi-year decision. Do you believe that that change in uh, annually as opposed to multi-year has benef helped benefit our farmers? I do think that's a good a good choice because of the volatility and 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 I'm a case in point. Um, I've actually played in all of them. I've done our county, arc individual, and NPLC. And there's definitely people that uh, um, have gone back from PLC back to uh, our county this year. Um, and part of it, uh, part of the reason we were doing some of the back and forth was dependent upon what you wanted to do with crop insurance. If you wanted to look at the supplemental programs of ECO or SCO. Um, which there was about 10 million acres um, in last year's crop that people signed up for. So I do believe in that flexibility. Okay, well, thank you for that. And next question along these lines is what, what do you and other producers consider when deciding between ARC and PLC? And do you believe that there's enough information out there um, and easily available for you to make a good decision, uh, an informed one? Um, I'm trying to get at it. Sounds like you have taking different opportunities depending on what your needs are. How easy is it for our other farmers to get this information so that they can do the same? Well, there's probably always room for improvement on, on ease of availability, but it is a challenge. Um, the, the programs are big and familiarity helps. And that's why actually I, I really hope that we continue with that in the next farm bill because people are finally getting comfortable about exactly what these programs are and how they work for them individually. Um, there's online tools that help. The university extension offices were very uh, useful um, when these programs were originally rolled out. They, along with the FSA offices, worked together, um, especially in Iowa. I, I assume the other states were similar um, as people try to work through those programs. But uh, um, there, there are big decisions, and, and the challenge oftentimes is, is you're forecasting the future. Um, and when you do those, and so you take your best experienced um, decision and move forward with that. Okay, so is there anything that you think we should be looking at adding? Any push marketing out to farmers? Anything that we can be in front of them with this on a regular basis? You mentioned that uh, you know the, the ISU extension was really helpful at the beginning of the program. Is there anything you think we should be doing ongoing to make sure farmers are aware? You know, one of the things I think was mentioned earlier is, is maybe a reminder. Um, farmers, farmers are busy. They're, they're doing their day jobs. And yes, signing up for government programs is part of our day job. Um, but it, it's something that slides through the cracks quite often. Uh, I've happened, seen that happen in our operation where you've got to make a decision and it's like, wait a minute, 
it's it's already that time. Uh, how do we get here? And you know, you really haven't had time to think about it. So maybe we need to go back. And it doesn't. I wouldn't say it's an every year thing, but maybe it's an every other year during the winter. Have a discussion about the programs on a more open form, forum coming from either extension or FSA to say, hey, um, guys, let's sit down and go through these again, run the formulas, uh, because everybody's talked about these are pretty complex and uh, farming is not um, not getting smaller. Well, thank you for that. Um, I very much appreciate that. And we'll, uh, hopefully we'll reach out to you and maybe get some thoughts on that from my team so we can put that into place. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, really appreciate your time today. I have other questions, but my time's coming near to an end here. So I'll thank you so much and yield back. Thank you. The general lady from Florida, Ms. Comack, is now recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all of our witnesses for appearing before the committee today. Uh, going into farm bill season, this is extraordinarily exciting, even though I know it doesn't seem like that after three hours. <laughs> but uh, very important nonetheless. So I'll jump right in. Uh, uh, Dr. Joe Hansen, I know that Florida farmers, including our sugarcane farmers, are assessing the damage from the January freeze, and they will share details of the damage as the harvest continues for the next few months. Please let us know when possible what disaster aid language might be necessary for Florida farmers to recover from the unexpected losses. Now, today I want to focus on a bill that I sponsored that pledges to end our sugar policy only when other countries end their sugar policies. You all may know it as zero for zero. The sugar industry supports this zero for zero legislation, and I would like you to briefly explain to my colleagues why as an industry expert. Well, <clears throat> thank you for that question, Congresswoman Kamek. Um, as you point out, um, over 100 countries produce sugar and their governments are deeply involved in these industries providing either high subsidies, tariffs, or non-tariff trade barriers to protect them. Uh, billions of dollars go into their industries each year, which allows them to you know, dump their surpluses below their own cost of production on the world market, um, which directly threatens U.S. farm families. Um, there's nothing fair about global sugar markets. Um, I'll just point out as an, as an example, uh, the WTO recently found India guilty um, for subsidizing sugar production by more than $14 billion a year, paying export subsidies to dump their surpluses on the world market. Uh, the U.S. sugar policy is a response to that high and rising foreign subsidies, which are a core cause of predatory trade practices in the global market. Um, the vast majority of these producers are higher cost and less sustainable than U.S. producers. Our sugar policy is a comprehensive response to these unfair trade practices. And if they stop these practices, as you point out, and let our farmers compete in a fair competitive marketplace, we would not need a program. Uh, we applaud you, Congresswoman, uh, for leading the charge through your zero for zero legislation uh, to expose those subsidies and trade practices that threaten our sugar industry and actually press to have those problems addressed um, on a multilateral basis uh, in the appropriate venue. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the question. Well, and thank you. And when you put it like that, I just don't know how any of my colleagues would argue against the zero for zero legislation. So thank you for that. Uh, and just so we're very clear, have you seen any evidence of foreign nations cutting back on their sugar subsidy programs? Yes or no? Uh, that would be no. And in fact, the other direction. Perfect. Thank you. I'm going to uh, now move to another issue 
that is near and dear to some of my producers' hearts, and that is the issue of peanuts and uh, base acreage. So, Ms. Rogers, I appreciate your testimony, particularly your highlighting of the fact that not all producers of peanuts have access to the PLC program due to lack of base acres. My district, my state, has a particularly unique situation in this regard. So as you know, many peanut uh, producers in Florida have faced challenges with the current base acreage arrangements. Given the changing economics growers are experiencing, particularly the rising cost of inputs, do you think that taking a look at a potentially voluntary update to base acres across commodities could have a positive impact on the bottom line for producers, including those peanut producers currently without access to the PLC? Thank you, Congresswoman. Um, we, we are definitely look at that. Our peanut leaders, they've been meeting with many growers in Florida to talk with them about the issues and how it could be addressed. And definitely updating base is an option. We're looking at that, plus um, many other options as well. We've got our economists looking at it and coming out with the cost of that would be to update the base and the cost of other options as well. And we sure hope that we can work with your team and this committee to come up with an option that would work for those growers as well as the rest of the growers. Thank you. And do you believe that if we were to move forward with a base update, that would incentivize and encourage young farmers to enter the industry? Um, I think that's possible. We definitely need to do what we can to um, help farmers and whatever we come up with, whatever option we come up with to be able to help the ones without base will definitely help the young farmers. Excellent. Well, I appreciate uh, your commentary and thank you again to all our witnesses for before, before the committee today. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back the remainder of my time. Thank you. The gentlewoman from Connecticut, Ms. Hayes, who is also the chair of the subcommittee on nutrition oversight and department operations, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for having this uh, very important hearing. Title I subsidies, along with non-farm bill assistant programs, are a critical economic safety net for the farmers in my district that can access them. Between 1995 and 2020, three farms in my district received commodity payments totaling $4.1 million. Compared with the, some of the other regions represented on this committee, that's pennies. And while these programs are based on acreage, it is still concerning to me that our smallest farms, those that have the tightest profit margins and least assets, to fall back on may be benefiting less from large corporate, less than large corporate farms and the largest family farms. That disparity is even more concerning when you consider the increased input prices we have seen over the past year. Many of your testimonies mentioned these concerns and the negative impact they are having across the agricultural sector. That strain is multiplied tenfold for a small family farm. The largest Title I payments to farms in my district were agricultural risk coverage payments for corn. So Mr. Eddington, as president of the National Corn Growers Association, can you provide some insight on how the, those payments function for the smallest farmers? So, you know, it, it's, it's a function of the process and, and acres and yield. And so you've got uh, um, a formula that that is designed and it's based off of acres and yield and and yeah there are fluctuations there's no question from from large 
farms to small farms. And, and unfortunately, um, I don't know a real good way around that. Um, if you speak with uh, Secretary Vilsack, he, he will talk about uh, what percentage of us farmers actually get a living based off of only crop production, and it's not very many. Um, and while people say that large family farms are, are a challenge, um, I live in part of a large family farm. And when you break it out on an individual basis, um, we're, not, we're not that many um, acres per producer inside of our operation. And so um, it's always something to be looked at, um, but it, it's currently it's a function of, base, of acres and, and yield. Do you think that it's equitable, equitable between small family farmers like those in my district and some of the larger corn producers? So, you know, when you're questioning about equitable, are, are you saying on a per acre basis or in the total dollars going to the operation? Because if you take two operations and one's got 150 acres of corn and one's got 1,000 acres of corn, but their, their base acres and their yield are the same, um, on a per acre basis, um, they, they are, will be very equivalent. On an overall operation, there will be a difference. Um, so it's, it's a challenge as to how you look at it and, and what, what area you're after. Got it. Thank you. In your testimony, you talked about how the USDA should continue to find more ways to reduce the reporting burden on producers. Can you elaborate on the burden felt by producers being required to visit the FSA office and how might that burden be de decreased? Well, one of the ways we talked about was how you how you handle crop insurance and reporting to the RMA as well as reporting to the FSA. In a lot of cases, it's a dual a dual process, and there should be a way to streamline that. Now, I, I'm personally I'm fully in favor of using the USDA um, acres because they are the most accurate out there. Um, if you use farmer technology numbers, um, there is some variance. Um, RMA, in, in my area at least, uses FSA numbers because they know that's the most accurate. But there should be a way that it could be a one-stop, either I'm going to go visit the FSA office and RMA gets those numbers, or I'm going to go visit my RMA agent if he's closer, and FSA gets those numbers. I think there's an area we could get some, some efficiency improvements. Thank you. I think we've heard the same thing across multiple programs. And lastly, for whomever, whomever on the panel would like to weigh in, I've heard a lot from people in my district regarding input prices and the increased cost of fertilizer. While this is very concerning in the immediate term, there may be other conservation practices that could mitigate the need for fertilizer long term. Specifically, planting cover crops may also improve the nutrients and soils that are available for crop production, potentially reducing farmers' dependence on chemical fertilizers. From your perspective, did higher fertilizer prices lead farmers to plant more acres with cover crops over this last winter? Absolutely, I believe so. It was a driving force, uh, especially for soybean farmers, very beneficial to uh, plant cover crops, and we certainly uh, encourage that. Thank you. Thank you for your time and your thoughtful answers, Mr. Chair. That's all I have. I yield back. Thank you. And now the gentlewoman from North Carolina, Miss. Adams, who is also the vice chair of the Committee on Agriculture, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you to the ranking member as well uh, for hosting the hearing today. And to all the witnesses, thank you for being here. The commodity support programs discussed today primarily assist basic commodities such as corn, rice, and cotton. However, socially disadvantaged and minority farmers tend to 
produce fruits, vegetables, and graze livestock. Therefore, socially disadvantaged and minority farmers are not able to take advantage of the bulk of funding and support programs. Uh, Improving access for all agricultural stakeholders to the uh, assistance programs that, that fall under commodity support programs is a priority for me. And I look forward to working with my colleagues on this issue as we move forward on the Farm Bill. So, Ms. Ford, uh, in your testimony, uh, you mentioned the need for market loan programs to be automated. So have any of your members, especially socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers, expressed challenges in accessing the technology or navigating the application process for commodity support programs? Um, Mm. We are advocating that, that everybody use more technology. Um, and right now we're working with um, the National Black Growers Council currently on um, just more involvement in, um, and more minority and involvement overall. So have you had any uh, one of those uh, express uh, the concerns that I've just mentioned? Ms. Ford? Yes, ma'am. The um, the program automation has been a problem because of government shutdowns due to okay. COVID. So, so what have you um, asked USDA to do uh, to better support uh, the socially disadvantaged and minority growers? Have you had a conversation with them about it? I have not personally, but that is something that the National Cotton Council is working on um, is more outreach and more okay. communication. All right, Mr. Ed, uh, Edgington, a uh, condition for eligibility for marketing assistance loans rests on the ability to store commodities, a current problem due to supply chain issues caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. So have your members expressed any concerns uh, regarding the eligibility or capacity to store their product? You know, storing corn is, is maybe a little different than, than others because we work in such a large volume. Um, and, and our infrastructure for corn has been has been pretty solid. Um, you've got a local uh, co-op network system. You've got a regional uh, delivery system where you've got on-farm storage. Um, there always can be challenges. Um, and obviously, the, the supply challenge that I hear about is, is maybe not... Um, from the loan side and the USDA, but from the supply side is can I get the materials to build a new storage bin uh, to hold the crop? And so we definitely have supply chain challenges um, in, inside the corn industry, as, as I think everybody at the table would say. And so we are, uh, we are hoping that we can get back to a new normal on supply chain, uh, but nobody knows what that is. Okay, Mr. Johansson, I mean, Dr. Johansson, uh, according to a review of USDA data, the top 10% of farm subsidy recipients receive almost 80% of all farm subsidies, while the largest 10% have received on average more than 560,000. The bottom 80% received an average of about 8,000. So considering these economic disparities, do you support reasonable payment limits and means testing for farm subsidies? That's a great, uh, great question. Um, I think it had been pointed out here earlier, um, you know, uh, about, you know, between 10 to 15 percent of, of farms produce about 90 percent of the food marketed here in the U.S. That 
that means there's a lot of other uh, operations out there that are also um, you know, uh, engaging in, in crop production and livestock production. Um, they're just at a smaller scale. So that, that explains one component of, uh, of that um, distribution of, of payments that you just mentioned. Um, obviously, uh, means testing and payment limits are, are firmly in, in control of, of the committee you're on there. Um, I, would, uh, I know that uh, Congress has looked at this issue many times over the past and has convened various committees some of which include, um, for example, uh, the office I used to work in at the Office of the Chief Economist. I think we have seen some reports coming out from those efforts. So I'm, uh, I would imagine that this will be something that, uh, that you all look at, uh, at with the new Farm Bill upcoming. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm out of time. I Thank yield you. back. Thank, thank you very much. And now the gentleman from Florida, Mr. Lawson, you're recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairman Scott and Member Thompson, for holding this uh, meeting. It's a very important meeting that we deal uh, with the uh, new farm bill. And I, I want to welcome, and as most of them are welcome, all the participants that we have uh, in the uh, in the meeting uh, uh, today. Uh, my statement, which I want some clarity on, is uh, in the in the 2018 farm bill included increased loan rates uh, for most covered commodities, including sugar loan rates uh, at around 1% pound, around well, 1% a pound. Dr. Johnson, you mentioned in your testimony that the increase uh, did not keep up with inflation or the rising cost of, uh, of production of sugar. What should be done uh, to the sugar loan rate to make them a more effective tool for sugar producers, and why should uh, this be a priority? Congressman, that's a great question. I think as everybody on this panel has talked about um, cost production, uh, input costs are rising um, quite a bit, certainly since uh, this I guess since last April, since last May, when we saw inflation really taking off, and that's been affecting all, all commodity production, um, uh, sugar cane and sugar beet um, certainly have been feeling that as well. And of course, in the last two months, we've seen this conflict uh, in Ukraine also um, pushing up prices for a lot of our inputs. Um, same time, I just want to point out that we've lost a lot of crop production, crop protection tools and inputs as well for uh, managing pests uh, on our operations. So um, I guess I would say that, yes, we did see in the last Farm Bill some uh, uh, fairly modest uh, changes to, to the raw cane loan rate as well as the refined beet rate. Um, certainly, I know our, our producers uh, and our members are looking at providing um, recommendations to the committee as we go forward, and we're still in the process of pulling those lists together and uh, certainly we'll be providing that um, as we get closer uh, uh, into this year as you have continued discussions, we'd be happy to, to follow up with those. But I think um, what I mentioned in my testimony was that it's clear that the loan rate um, uh, is not matching current cost of production, current input costs have been going up. I think that would be something that folks would echo here. Of course, you know, sugar doesn't participate in an ARC PLC. So um, we've had a lot of discussion about that as well. Talking about reference prices, it's much the same with respect to uh, reference prices and current 
uh, current costs on the operation. So again, um, thanks for the question and certainly we'll be looking forward to, um, you know, putting forward our recommendations a little bit further into the summer here as we continue to meet and develop what, what those might be. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Johnson. You know, as a congressional member uh, of uh, Florida, I know how important it is uh, for disaster assistance to quickly and effectively be distributed to farmers and, 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 and the producers. The question here for all witnesses, for your commodities, uh, what would a permanent disaster assistance program look like and how should it work in conjunction with the current authorized Title I program? Well, uh, let me just say uh, real fast, and I'll let, let my other panelists and, uh, from the other commodities chime in. This is a question that we've talked a little bit about today. Certainly, I think one thing that, that everybody's um, interested in seeing is if there are additional standing disaster program uh, developments in the next farm bill, that they be um, ones that are consistent with crop insurance that may be um, also do encourage additional coverage, um, potentially, uh, as well as looking at some commodities that may not be as, uh, as well served, uh, by the current crop insurance products. Um, some, some commodities, maybe specialty crops, certainly, uh, sugar cane and sugar beet, um, uh, would like to see some additional, uh, improvements in, in some of those products available to us, uh, at, at a more reasonable price. Um, but I, I'll, See if other panelists want to add to that. Any? Mr. Chairman, I, I guess uh, no one else want to respond. With that, my time is running out. I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Lawson. And ladies and gentlemen, this brings our hearing to a close. And I can't thank you enough. Our committee can't thank you enough. Your wisdom, your guidance, uh, your testimonies have been just extraordinary and very helpful to us. The input you've shared with us today is so critical to our committee's effort to oversee this farm bill. We're in the 2018 and as we prepare for the next Farm Bill 2023, and we want to thank you for that. Farmers across our nation now are experiencing, they have experienced so much, and uh, we must respond and make sure that our farmers, our producers, have all of the means necessary to do the critical job that we're calling upon them to do. Our food supply is critical, not only to us, but the entire world. And as we look at and as we examine the impact that this Russia evil business is doing in Ukraine, it impacts us drastically. And we have got to resolve our nation our leadership, the leadership of the European Union, and all over this world, we've got to raise a loud voice and stop Russia from doing and continuing this evil work, killing women and children indiscriminately. 
It's enough to break our hearts. But we've got to understand the role that we have in providing the food supply, most critical. There's no nation on earth that has this weight on the shoulders of their farmers as we do because we have the world's greatest and most impactful agriculture system. And so we want to thank you so very much again. And over the coming weeks and months, I look forward to continuing to engage with you and all of our stakeholders on the options we should look at for our next farm bill. But you have shared with us what works and what does not work. We're on a journey here, and uh, it's an exciting one, but it's also one where the world is indeed depending upon our agriculture system to be strong. And we're committed to doing that. And you all have helped us greatly today. And from the bottom of my heart and the hearts of those of us on this committee, we thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to share with us your valuable testimony. And now, under the rules of the committee, the record of today's hearing will remain open for 10 calendar days to receive additional material and supplementary written responses from the witnesses to any questions posed by a member. And now, this hearing of the Committee on Agriculture is adjourned.